Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another action-packed, awesome episode of greatness. Yeah. Uh, This is coming to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Okay, guys, we have had some good times recently talking about non-Scientology stuff like intersectionality and other goofy, fun stuff. Uh, This week, we're getting back into the cult realm and uh, where this, of course, where my channel really lives. And I am gonna be, uh, we're gonna be talking with a special guest. Her name is Sarah Landry. She is uh, pretty awesome, actually. She has recently been featured on Ron Miscavige Sr.'s podcast, uh, Life After Scientology, and she has been um, popping up in some other podcasts as well, telling her story. She has been out of uh, what I guess we will, we are going to be talking about it in all kinds of detail here. So I'm giving really simple, st- silly summations here. But she has been out for just over a year of uh, what you might call an Indian Hindu cult. Uh, that she was involved with for nine years. And uh, we're going to get all the details on how and why and when and all of that. So Sarah, welcome to my show. Thank you so much, Chris. I'm a a big fan of your show. It's really, um, it's been something helpful on my journey to understand what a cult is. Um, And also to, to overcome a lot of the guilt that I had because I had basically worked my way to the top of that cult and recruited a lot of people into it. Um, so when I got out, you know, just over a year ago, um, there was nobody else who had left the Nithyananda cult. So I really dove into Leah Remini's series, um, Scientology and the Aftermath. And that led me to finding your channel and Ron's channel and so many other ex-Scientologist channels. Um, yeah, and I, I totally appreciate the work you're doing. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I, uh, I, I hope that this will be another, uh, you know, yeah. notch in the stick of anti-cult activism here, you know? Uh, so let's, let's get into your story. Um, you are obviously Canadian. Is it that obvious, eh? It's, you know, to, to those of us who recognize the, yeah. the accent, yeah. Yeah, yes, I'm Canadian. Yeah, born and raised. Um, <laughs> born in Canada then? Yeah, born in Canada. And okay, so how does somebody from, well, first off, would you say you had a normal regular upbringing um how are your parents how are you get along with them i get along really really well with my family i was born and raised in a catholic family and a a fairly conservative um, education catholic family my granddad was the the director of curriculum of the catholic school district and um, he was the superintendent of the district when i first entered catholic school and my mom's a teacher my auntie is a teacher um, so it was a fairly traditional Catholic upbringing. And I mean, I've, I've heard some people say every religion is a cult. And um, yeah, I don't think so. Because in, in Catholicism, like I, I went through um, a major rebellious phase when I turned about eight or nine years old. It started when we were getting prepared for, uh, to receive the First Communion, which is one of the Catholic sacraments or the rites of passage. And that was the first time they taught us the words of the mass. You know, before that, Catholic kids go to Sunday school. So when, I, when we had to say the words, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, but only say the word and I shall be healed, 
I raised my hand and did something a Catholic schoolgirl shouldn't do. And I said, why are we not worthy to receive the Lord? Didn't he create us? You know, why would he make us if we're not worthy? Um, and I wasn't really satisfied with the teacher's answer. So I kind of went through the motions, but no longer believed in it. Um, then later I, I got cats and fell in love with animals and decided not to eat meat anymore. And it, it wasn't politically motivated. I didn't even know the word vegetarian. I just decided, okay, I don't want to eat animals. Um, so they kind of thumped the biblical view and said, well, God put animals on the planet to kill and eat. And that led me to call myself an atheist as a kid. And I thought, you know, I don't believe in God. Why, why would God make a person who's not worthy? Um, why would God make animals just to get eaten? Couldn't he have invented a better thing to be food so it doesn't have to suffer? Um, so, you know, the only strain that ever existed, if you can call it that, between me and my family or me and my upbringing is that um, I guess I thought in a, in a way that was different from the norm. But right. At least the, the norm established by your family. The norm established, exactly, by, by a, a Catholic family. Right. And what's interesting, the, the reason I would say now that, you know, Catholicism, for all of its many, many, many flaws, I, I don't in any way go to church any, like, I'm still never going to fall back into Catholicism. But, you know, when I told my grandfather, who was, you know, very heavily involved in the Catholic community, I don't believe in this. Um, I'm vegetarian. I don't believe in a God who can, you know, make species suffer. He didn't disconnect from me and say, well, then you are no longer my granddaughter. I didn't get banned from Sunday dinners. You know, they started buying veggie burgers. So there'd be something for me at the barbecue. And, you know, they'd make a little joke. Well, let's all go to church, except for Sarah. She'll stay home. Um, so when, when you're in a community that believes something and you believe something else, but everyone coexists peacefully. And, you know, if there's a debate, it's a friendly debate. Like you believe this, I believe that. But at the end of the day, we still love each other. Um, that's the kind of family I was raised in. So. Well, that's a, that's a blessing. Yeah, I think so. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, given, given the, the family situation with a lot of people, that's, that's really very, very cool. And there are, of course, Catholics who will shun, especially old school, you know, pre, what do they call that? Uh, um, Vatican? Yeah, Vatican II, um, yeah. Before, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially the old guard. But yeah. Um, but yeah, you can't really call the Catholic Church as an entity, as an entire whole, a destructive cult. It doesn't really follow the model. You will find individual clergy or individual family members who will practice shunning, who will do the us versus them thing, who will yeah. be abusive uh, yeah. about the belief system. You definitely find that, but that doesn't, you know, you can't take uh, instances like that and then paint the entire picture that way. No. You know, Scientology yeah. on the other hand. Yeah. That whole group is just an abusive group. I mean, there just isn't, there's no, there's no church of Scientology you can go to where you're not going to experience the abusive aspects well, of it, you know. And the, the same applies to the Nithyananda cult. You know, when I left Catholicism, mm. my family said, okay, great, the door's always open if you change your mind. Uh, when I left the Nithyananda cult, they started a character assassination attempt behind That's the scenes. Um, that became much more active and malicious when I went public about the abuse I had suffered in that organization. So, 
you know, for, for me, a, a religion is a place that you can go to for comfort or for community or for something that you feel is missing in your inner space. And the door is always open to come and go. Um, but the, the cult experience is something that I wasn't prepared for because I had never experienced a destructive community. Um, so I, I feel like back in 2009, when I first found Nityananda, I had no idea that a group could become so toxic in the name of spirituality. Right. And let's go ahead and get into that. How did you grow up in a regular, nice, normal Catholic household in Canada and end up in an Indian cult? That is quite an interesting thing. At the time I found Nityananda, I was living in Vancouver. And I had gone to art school for a couple of years. I felt a little directionless about my future. Um, part of me wanted to be a professional artist. Another part of me was getting really interested in new agey stuff. Like there, there was a crystal shop um, very close to the university I had attended. And I got really drawn in by, at first, just the beauty of the shiny things. You know, you see a <laughs> crystal and I, I'm fascinated by geology, the hard science. But I started getting really curious about gemology, more of the pseudoscience, the mystical stuff. And like the mystical properties and spiritual qualities I, of the gems and that sort of thing. For sure, exactly. And, I, and yeah. I started, you know, a lady working at that crystal shop was really, really cool. Um, you know, she used to tour with the Grateful Dead. She dated one of those guys and she would tell stories about different shamans in South America who work with different stones. And I got really captivated by that. Um, and that's what led me to practice meditation and to, you know, start seeking for spiritual answers outside of the cultural dynamic I grew up in. And that's when I started shifting my belief from atheist more into agnostic. And I, I'd had experiences throughout my life where I saw what could only be described as Hindu gods in dreams. And I could never really equate where that came from because having been raised Catholic, and especially going to Catholic school, I didn't meet anybody from India or know anybody from that culture. And so I, I'm fully open to the possibility that I might have seen a National Geographic cover or come across that in a textbook somewhere and didn't know about it and it popped up in a dream. I don't know how the subconscious works. But at that time, I interpreted this as being that I had had visions of these gods and goddesses, so they must be reaching out to me trying to tell me something. Sure. So, I, I was fully deeply into that when I started praying for enlightenment because I came across scriptures in Buddhism and Hinduism that said the, the ultimate goal of all human life is to realize enlightenment. So I had friends from, from work who took me to see Buddhist teachers who were talking about Tibetan tradition. Um, a guy who ran a shop next to the store where I was working was actually a Scientologist. And he told me that if I wanted to experience um, leaving my physical body and seeing things from outside my physical body, that was the goal for um, his practices and I should check it out. So it's like there were, there were different kind of cultic people buzzing around, <laughs> inviting me to different places. But for some reason, um, it was the Nityananda group that seemed to have what I was looking for. And what would you, in hindsight, in retrospect, looking at that, what was it about them? What, what, what stood out for you? Well, first and foremost, what stood out was that as soon as I got to the meditation center, 
everyone there seemed really peaceful and really content. And when I had gone to the other groups, for example, when a friend brought me to a Buddhist lecture, there was a lot of kind of paranoia about behaving correctly in front of the Rinpoche who was visiting. You know, you have to bow a certain way, you have to sit a certain way, you have to stand a certain way. And it seemed like the organizers were almost scared of disrespecting him. And, you know, the, the coworker, the, the guy at the store next door who invited me to a Scientology lecture, I asked him flat out, well, okay, you're, you're describing this thing. I think he called it exterior, exteriorizing. Maybe you could correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, no, that's what it's called. Okay, so I asked him, so have you experienced it? And he said no. And I said, well, has anybody teaching you experienced it? And he said no. So I kind of ruled that out and thought, okay, that's... Unless somebody tells me they've experienced something themselves, I'm not going to throw myself into something. Um, but when I got to the Nityananda Center, it was called the Life Bliss Center. And it, it was on my bus route home on you know, Broadway Street in Vancouver at the halfway point on my bus, bus route. When I walked into the room, people were saying, you know, the goal for this practice is not just to get enlightened when you die, but to be in a space called living enlightenment. In Sanskrit, they called it jivan mukti, living enlightenment. And I asked them, so what does that mean exactly? How does it apply in your life? And they described having reduced thoughts, so less distraction from the task at hand, being focused, being centered. And when I asked, are you experiencing this? Everyone said yes. So it seemed like, okay, here's a group who practices what they preach. Everyone seems happy. It didn't come across at all as dogmatic. There was no set of beliefs that you had to ascribe to to be part of it. Um, they said you can, you can still do you know, crystal healing, which I was into, and also follow Nityananda. Um, people could still be Jewish and follow Nityananda or Catholic and follow him. And so it seemed inclusive, not exclusive. And there were a few red flags, like the, the ladies who coordinated the center all wore matching beaded necklaces with his picture on it. And I thought that was really cheesy and stupid, but you know, I kind of set my, set my criticism aside and decided to listen to them instead of just jumping to a conclusion about them. And they told me that they wore those necklaces called malas with his picture because it reminded them of the goals of their life and their devotion and they felt empowered by it. And it, it's funny, like one of the things I said to myself was, well, I'm never going to need to wear this man's picture in order to feel empowered. And yet within a couple of months, I was right there doing it with them. It's, it's really easy to get swept along with a crowd when you, know, you immerse yourself in a community where every single person is doing the same exact thing and hyping each other up and saying, this is the best decision I've ever made. This, I can't believe I ever lived any way other than this. And, and this was mostly focused around meditation? Yes. Okay, yeah, so you would report to the place, like what, after work or on the weekends or something and just sort of, at that hey, time, now I'm gonna meditate? Sort of, yeah. At that time, the place was open three nights a week. Um, okay. One, we would watch a discourse of this master that had been pre-recorded in India. And I use the term master very loosely. I would call him a master manipulator. Um, but we would watch his discourses and he would speak in a really thickly accented Tamil voice um, and talk about, interestingly enough, a lot of Scientology concepts. He talked about engrams and he said that- Wait a minute, what? 
He actually said engrams? Yes. I shit you not. He said engrams. He what? also said, oh, get this. You, you might appreciate this little factoid. <laughs> he claimed that L. Ron Hubbard was a reincarnated Rishi. And Rishis are like the, the ancient Vedic wise men who, who penned down the Vedas and the Agamas and a lot of Hinduism's source books. So he claimed L. Ron Hubbard is a reincarnated Rishi and that samskara, the Hindu term for, you know, a, an event from your past that weighs heavily on your present and limits your future. He said engram is the word L. Ron coined that is the English equivalent of samskara. So he wanted us to call it samskaras, but he said that the same teachings apply. So and I'm sorry, just let me ask you about this. So what is a, what does he define as a samsara? Samskara. Samskara. Okay. What is it? What is, if you, if you didn't know anything about engrams, right. what would you say a samskara is? A samskara is a limiting belief that sits on your present moment that was created by an experience from your past, either in this lifetime or a previous lifetime. And that Nityananda's teaching is that we can only clear our karma in this lifetime if we clear our samskaras. So, I mean, I don't want to get too far into his philosophy because that could confuse anybody watching. It's not even, you know, it's well. No, I'm I, I I'm definitely going to ask you some some okay, philosophy questions along the way, but. Sure. Um, yeah, don't feel don't feel you have to shy away from any of that stuff. I'm just I got curious about that because that's yeah. not what an engram is. No, but it's kind of related to the effects an engram would have on a person. So <laughs> I get the parallel, but it's interesting yeah. that he would say yeah. that. That's just fascinating to me. You know? Yeah, yeah. See, he he took a lot of teachings from Scientology and also from uh, a program called Landmark. One of his <laughs> <laughs> so, and having right. never studied Scientology or Landmark, I, it's only my guess which aspect of his teachings he took from each of those um, systems. But he definitely said a samskara is the same thing as an engram. All and right. He defined a samskara basically as a karma that we have to clear. Okay, fair enough. I'll, I'll just clarify for anybody who's out there wondering what the hell I'm talking about when I say it's not that. Um, an engram is a moment recorded in your mind, your reactive mind in Scientology, of a moment of spe a specific moment of pain and unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't have those two things, it's not an engram. Right. It's not just a bad thing that happened to you or an unfortunate circumstance or, you know, or a bad belief or something. It's an actual physical incident of pain and unconsciousness that is stored in the reactive mind. So it's, but it has the effect of being something that has to be cleared up because it's going to have an unconscious and or subconscious and, and destructive impact on your life in the future. So that's why it has to be cleared. And that language is the same as Dianetics and Scientology. So uh, just, just piping in there on that, just so the audience knows why I would say that it's not the same but it's related and I find that fascinating. I'll also let you know, because I don't know if you know this or not, but Landmark pretty much comes from Scientology. Oh, I did not know that, but yeah. it doesn't surprise me. It doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. <laughs> Landmark he, was from Est, Est was from 
a bunch of things, including Scientology. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's it's also funny that you know he's trying to copy Engram and he's getting it wrong. So that's, I know, that's, right? That's that's <laughs> what I find funny. Is yeah. is of course he's not getting it right. He probably didn't get through Dianetics. He probably just heard oh. about it saw it online or something and said, oh yeah, okay, there we go. And Hubbard talks about the Vedic hymns, Hubbard talks about the long tradition of Buddhist philosophy that Scientology comes from, blah, blah, blah. So, yeah. you know, it, it's funny how these two guys will play off each other. That's, that's interesting. Well, and of course, Nityananda is an egomaniac. So he said L. Ron <laughs> Hubbard is a reincarnated Rishi. Right. And he has translated some of the Vedic teachings in a way that modern Western society could understand in his time. But mm -hmm. Nityananda claims to be an incarnation of the Lord Sadashiva, who is the source of all of that wisdom. And now he says he's incarnated to teach the ultimate truth from its origin. So, you know, he gives a little bit of credit to L. Ron Hubbard, but then he takes the majority of the credit for himself. So he's of course. And he doesn't speak proper English, so he calls himself the Updation. He's the updation of that. Um, but anyhow, we were, we were all learning engrams and samskaras in, in the Nityananda way. And wow. we were all told that our goal in meditation is to reach a space of zero TPS, which is zero thoughts per second in his vernacular. So he described that the average human being in any given moment has a thousand thoughts running through their heads simultaneously. Um, I also want to clarify, like the, the way you mentioned that as per Scientology, an engram leaves a negative imprint in your mind. Nityananda said there is no such thing as mind. There's only consciousness and physicality. Mind is an illusion. And so his goal was to eliminate the mind, let people do what needs to be done through the body, which is originated in the higher consciousness. So he doesn't even validate the, the concept that mind exists. He said, mind does not exist. Body is matter. Consciousness is the source of that matter. The mind he described as being an action. So if you can stop walking, if you can stop talking, you can also stop minding. And so this led all of his followers into utter and complete confusion. Um, because the, the worst thing you can tell somebody who's about to meditate is stop thinking. Because then they're, <laughs> then they're just going to sit there thinking, stop thinking, stop thinking. Fuck, I'm not doing this properly. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. No, but, you can swear. Please go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I usually try not to. I don't want to polarize anybody. But um, anyhow, he would tell us mind is an action. And that the goal of meditation is to stop it. And that we, we should be clearing our samskaras. And as long as something brings up a reaction in us, not only negative, but positive or negative, then that thing has power over us. And we should be completely neutral about everything so that we can just create our reality as we want it. Um, so whereas traditional Hinduism focuses on letting go of greed and fear and desire, Nityananda was more boasting the egocentric capacity to create what you want in life, you know, and to be, okay. you know, more about manifestation than cessation. So 
you know, I, I was really on the fence, but curious the first time I went to his center, um, then inspired the next time I went and saw everyone. But the second time I went to his center, they were having kind of a, a party to celebrate one of the Hindu festivals. And of course, the, the order, I shouldn't say of course, but um, it should come as no surprise that they had a really restrictive diet. Like they had a, what they called the Vedic diet or the Sattvic diet, which means no onions, no garlic, no green chilies, no alcohol of any kind, um, and pure vegetarian. And I, I was a little shocked by the amount of dairy they consumed, you know, because in, in my research, the dairy industry is just as cruel as the meat industry in the Western world. So, you know, they, they talk about praising and worshiping the mother cow, and yet, you know, they're drinking milk from a, a Western dairy farm. So I, I was still critical. I still had the critical thinking skills of a person who isn't um, fully enmeshed in the group think. But right. You know, I decided, okay, I'll do the meditations and I'll listen to the discourses because they seem helpful, um, but I'm not going to become one of them. And by one of them, I mean a person who, if you spoke to anybody at that center back in 2009, um, they seemed a little bit like, uh, like schoolgirls who had a crush on a rock star. Like he, he didn't come across as being like a, a spiritual renunciant they presented him as being like a, a larger than life figure. They had posters of him on their walls. They wore his picture on their necklaces. Um, they, they would describe binge watching his videos nonstop. The morning they'd get up and turn on one of his discourses. They'd leave it running throughout the day. They'd gaze at the screen. And one of the ladies there, this should have been a red flag for me. She said, you know, Sarah, as soon as you get to his ashram in India, you're going to fall in love with him. And I thought she was joking because he was a kind of very heavily obese man. He kind of very effeminate in his appearance at that time. And I thought that's silly. Like, you know, I might have respect and reverence, but I'm definitely not going to fall in love with him. But, you know, in retrospect, he had the kind of charisma where he would make men and women both get so infatuated. It was definitely a personality cult. And, you know, he marketed it as marketed himself as a yoga master and meditation master. But, you know, when I finally got to the program in India in November of 2009, it was clear that the day is structured around worshiping him. You know, the first thing we would do in the morning. Well, let me hold on one second. I'm sorry. I'm totally cutting you <laughs> off here, but let me back up just a second because I'm still curious about your Canadian experience here. Okay. Because we're sort of jumping from, you know, your second day there to now you're on a plane to India. And I'm, and I'm kind of thinking there was probably something in between there. Right. And I'm, yeah, and I'm curious, um, were the people who were at the, uh, what, temple? What do you call it? Uh, it was called the Life Bliss Center. So the it was Life Bliss Center. Yes. The Life Bliss Center. Yes. Um, were they all Canadians? Yes. So this was just a local branch sort of thing. Exactly. It was a local branch. And, and funny, one of the questions I asked on my first day after we finished the meditation was, so where is Nityananda? When does he come out? When do we get to talk to him? Because I assumed he lived in Vancouver and this was his center. I didn't know that this was one of hundreds of similar centers around the world promoting him. So the lady told me, no, he lives in India. And 
it was it was not just um, like it wasn't an ethnocentric group of of Caucasian Canadians. The people running that center were NRI Indians, which means non-resident Indians. So people of genetically Indian ancestry who live in the West. Um, and it, it's interesting because Vancouver has one of the highest Sikh communities outside of India. And the people running the center were actually Sikh, even though Nityananda was a, well, was born and raised Hindu. I don't want to call his cult a Hindu cult because the, the vast majority of Hindu people in India resent him and call mm. him a fraud. Like he is tabloid fodder across India, but he markets himself as Hindu. But okay. his center was, was mostly Sikh people, um, mostly, you know, there were some French Canadians there, um, people from all over the world. You know, the yoga teacher was a lady from, boy, I think she was Russian. And I'll be interviewing her on my channel soon because she's also left the cult. But, you know, it was a fairly diverse group of people spanning from, you know, kids and teenagers to elderly people. Um, some Hindu born, some Sikh born, some from almost every different religion. And at that point in time, like I said, it just seemed like such a really cool, welcoming, diverse community that was inclusive. And, you know, on, on one of my first visits there, I bought his book, which was called Living Enlightenment. Um, that was a week after I found him at a program called Kalpataru. And the Kalpataru program was a, a $200 workshop that was held um, promoting his meditations. And at the end of that one day workshop, he himself appeared on stage and gave everyone what's called energy darshan, which is his blessing. And so people would queue up like they were going. It really reminded me of going to the mall as a kid and lining up to meet Santa Claus. <laughs> right. I'm, I swear right. the dress he was sitting on was probably bought from a mall's Christmas prop department. It was this <laughs> big golden throne with like a red seat back and he was sitting there, you know, with his arms on the armrests and men lined up on one side, women on the other. And to bless them, he would put his hand on their head or um, he would kind of stamp his thumb on their third eye. And he said that, you know, we were all told you can't realize enlightenment unless you have the physical touch of an enlightened master. They claim that this is how, you know, the tradition of enlightenment has been kept alive on planet earth. They never call it earth. They always call it on the planet earth. So I guess other planets have other systems, but right. you know, down here, us earthlings need a touch from an enlightened being in order to get enlightened ourselves. And, you know, as kooky as it sounds, it made sense the way they described it. Right. So, That's the thing, isn't it? Yeah, you yeah. know, it made sense at the time. Yep. It sounded good. Yeah. Sounded real. I mean, everybody else stood around me and said, yes, this is this yep. is the thing. Yes. It's hard to buck a system like that, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And especially because the meditation really did feel good. Mm -hmm. um, taught mm -hmm. a dynamic meditation. And I later found out this was plagiarized like step by step out of Osho's teachings. Osho even coined the phrase dynamic meditation. So we were taught a dynamic meditation that included chaotic breathing and humming. And, you know, it's, it's verbatim what Osho used to teach. And, and, and for the audience, who is Osho? 
Osho. So he, he's also called Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. And he was an, Indu, uh, an Indian teacher who kind of um, strayed from Hinduism and considered himself more like a Zen Buddhist. And I think the world would know him most now for the Netflix series, Wild Wild Country. Right. He's the founder of Rajneeshpuram that, you know, poisoned a little community in the States and, you know, caused a lot of trouble in a lot of people's lives. So Nitya well, had a considered... Sounds like exactly the guy to get meditation advice from. Oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> right. So, I mean, it to, to get an assessment of who Nityananda was as an individual at that point in time, his heroes were, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, Osho, um, and he, he was also a big fan of somebody called Gurdjieff. I'm not sure if you know who, who that guy was. No, tell um, me. Gurdjieff, from what I, what I remember, it's been years since I've heard Nityananda. We usually call him Nithi because Nityananda... Nityananda is, is too beautiful of a name. It means eternal bliss, but he's, he's Nitty. Um, that's, the, that's more appropriate, Nitty. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. Nitty, you know. Um, Gurdjieff was a, I think he was a Russian master who claimed that he could teach enlightenment. And he basically just tortured his disciples through useless manual labor. And he claimed that in order to reach the space of no mind, a person's logic had to be broken. So Nitti would rave to us about how great of a master Gurdjieff was. And, you know, this is kind of jumping ahead in the story. But whenever he made his disciples do manual labor, like construct a perimeter wall around his compound, um, you know, or, or clean one of the heavily neglected bathing areas, he would say, at least I'm not making all of you, you know, dig a hundred foot hole and then bury it and dig it in the next spot the way Gurdjieff used to do. Um, so it was kind of like, he tried to make us feel grateful for the abuse he did because at least he's not abusing us as badly as Gurdjieff had abused his followers. Um, yeah, so I mean, his idols were always kind of narcissistic, charismatic char characters who who felt like they had the right to impose themselves on people's lives and were able to convince people that serving them was for the followers higher good you know right. there, there's there's a hilarious comedy channel on youtube by a, a guy named jp sears and i i like a lot of his yes he's very good he's hilarious so in, yes. in one of them how to you know why to follow a guru? He says, you know, following a guru puts you in the very empowered position of being a follower. Exactly. And that's the kind of thing that Nityananda would say, like, yeah, it's it's going into what's called in Sanskrit the guru parampara, like a, his masters initiated him and their masters initiated them, and this keeps the science of enlightenment alive. And we were told that Nityananda would make each one of us into our own master, that he wasn't there to keep control over us for life, that he would give us enlightenment. And then once we were enlightened, we could flourish in whatever we chose to do. So it's definitely not like we each got in thinking, here goes the rest of my life to worshiping his feet and doing his free labor. Uh, we went in really believing he he had a benevolent mission to pass on the enlightenment his gurus gave him. And yeah, it, it's easy to get sucked in. 
Well, yeah, it is, unfortunately, and I get everything you're saying. Um, at what point did, like, was there some, was there some turning point that you can remember where, and if, and if not, that's fine. I'm just curious if there was some point while you're doing your meditations, you know, going to this place, it's starting to become a, a habit now. This is something you're doing in your life. You're going and meditating three times a week or however often you're doing it. Was there some point where you said, bing, oh, <laughs> this is the answer. This is what I need. This is, this is it. Yep, there was. That okay. turning point for me happened at this Kalpataru program. So at that program, when Nityananda walked into the room and sat on the stage, you know, my eyes instantly welled up with tears and... You know, a lot of people were moved to tears when he sat down and I felt such a beautiful energy radiating from him and it, I didn't know how to describe it. And, you know, a lot of my research into cults, so over this last year, I've been kind of a, a cult nerd. I've read everything written about destructive cults. And it's interesting, there, there's a term faulty attribution. For when a person has a beautiful spiritual experience and then they assume that it was a gift from another person or, you know, a lot of people wear crystals and even like I have an Etsy shop where I sell crystal jewelry because that's still a hobby of mine. Um, people might buy a stone and they're told, okay, this stone has these good properties. So they start carrying that stone and focusing on those properties and trying harder to gain those properties. They get them because they're putting in that effort but they give credit to the stone. I think that this, this feeling of being moved to tears when he entered the stage, in retrospect, it's because before he entered the hall, the acharyas, which are the ordained teachers in his organization, told all of us, he emanates a beautiful energy. You're going to feel so blessed by his presence. It's like, first we did intensive meditation. Then we were put into silence for an hour. Then we were told, that we should fill our beings with the yearning for his blessings. And that when he entered the hall, we were going to feel overwhelmed by his grace and beauty. So, I mean, of course we were all moved to tears because we were told that that's what was going to happen. Exactly. Um, that priming cannot be over, it cannot be over, overstated how important no. all that is, especially the lengths of time. You mentioned extreme yeah. meditating. What, what is extreme meditating? What does that mean? <laughs> Dynamic meditation. So, uh -huh. um, I, like how, like, how long does the session go on for before he walked in the room? How long were you doing that? I don't honestly remember how long we were meditating that particular day, but typically before he gives darshan, which means, you know, before he appears on the stage, people are forced to sit blindfolded in a room where the speakers are blaring music cranked up to the maximum volume of people in Sanskrit chanting his name. Usually they're forced to sit there between one and two hours. And so, did this happen to you? Yes, yes, this is what they did. Okay, so this was the extreme meditating part. Yes, extreme. And then an hour, and then an hour of silence. Yeah. And then, He's coming out and you're going to feel amazing. And we did. Yes. I tell you, we followed those instructions. We were told we'd feel amazing and we did. Yep. And, you know, interestingly, during his energy darshan, we were told you can ask him any question 
and he'll give you his blessings. So we were told Kalpataru is a Sanskrit name for the wish-fulfilling tree, and we were told this cute little um, folk tale from India about this tree that's called the Kalpavriksha, and it's this mythical tree that anybody who sits and meditates under the tree will have their, their, their wish fulfilled. And so we were told that one day one man was wandering through the forest in India. He got tired, so he sat down to rest under a tree, not knowing it's the Kalpavriksha. And he suddenly got hungry and he thought, wow, I wish I had some food. And a feast appeared in front of him and he started eating. And then he, he got sleepy. He ate himself into a food coma state and he thought, okay, now I want, I want some rest. I wish I had a bed. So a bed appeared and he laid down and started resting on that bed. And then he thought, uh-oh, you know, I wish for food and food appeared. I wish for a bed and a bed appeared. This must be the Kalpavriksha. I better wish for the right thing. So as he started thinking of what his next wish would be, he remembered his fear of tigers and started thinking, okay, don't think of a tiger, don't think of a tiger, and a tiger appeared and ate him. And what we were all told is that Nityananda is the Kalpa Vriksha, the Kalpataru, in human form. And that whatever we wish for in his presence, we'll get that. And so we had to do intensive meditation in order to clear our minds of any negative or self-destructive thoughts so that when we went up to him in energy darshan, we would have the capacity to ask for the right thing, you know? And so, you know, again, as cheesy as it sounds, that made perfect sense to us at the time. And we were told if you ask for a million dollars, he'll bless you, you'll get that million dollars. If you ask for, you know, a promotion at work, you'll get it. If you want name and fame, you'll get it. If you want a beautiful relationship, you'll get it. But the best thing you can ask for is to be with him in this November or December for a program called Life Bliss Engineering or a program called Inner Awakening. Life Bliss Engineering is $8,000 three months. Inner Awakening is $6,000 um, 21 days. The best thing you can ask for is to have that experience. And so right. when we went up for his Kalpavriksha blessings, um, they had it in their mind that the best thing they could ask for in the world is to attend his program in India. And right. so that's when, that's when this idea got planted in us that, okay, we're seeing him in Vancouver, but what's even better is to go to his home, his place in India. And then, of right. course, they had testimonials. So people who had been to the previous Inner Awakening or the previous Lifeless Engineering went up on stage and started talking about all the myriad blessings that had happened in their lives after getting back from India. So wow. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So this, was, this is their intro line, as we call it in Scientology, that there's a, you know, how do you like the personality test or you come in and you, you know, you do this or do that. That's all free stuff. And, you know, it's yeah. not quite as ritualized as, as all the stuff you're yeah. talking about. But it's a, fascinating because he made a personal appearance there. And back in the day when Hubbard would, was still around, he was doing congresses twice a year. He would go around and do exactly like this. He would go do some lecturing and talk about Scientology stuff. And, you know, Scientologists would bring their friends and they could meet the old man. And it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a holy experience to meet L. Ron Hubbard, but it was a big deal. 
And, yeah. uh, you know, of course, Scientologists thought, thought the world of him and they would impart that to their friends and family and try to get them on board. So it's anyway, similarities and differences. It just, uh, just, I, but I, I, of course, there's no surprise that the best thing you can wish for is more time with Nitty. You know? Yeah, more time with Nitty. And they, and they also said that, you know, his ashram has an actual 2,000-year-old ancient banyan tree that the, the source of all energy in his mission is that tree. Um, and that, you know, as great as the experience is to meet him, going to the source or the energy hub of his mission is even better. And so wow. there's this mythologized banyan tree that they claim um, in a previous lifetime, they say he was an enlightened master in the form of two bodies, one male and one female, and that those two bodies are buried under that banyan tree. And that if you sit in the presence of that tree, you can connect with the form of Shiva and the form of Shakti, the god and the goddess together at the same time. So everyone wanted to go to that banyan tree. And I mean, there was a galleria of gift items available for sale. And one of those items was a little plastic compass that wherever you stand, it points in the direction of the banyan tree. So every day you can bow down to that tree and you know that you're bowing in the right direction even from canada um this so is so genius this stuff you know it sounds ridiculous to your ears now i'm sure mine right now other people who are listening it's like oh come on but you know when this stuff hooks when you when you get somebody like you you know or other people they just go oh yes this is what i'm looking for yeah. <laughs> and it's just the step-by-step -step thing. And when it hooks, it's powerful, you know? It's very powerful, yeah. And I mean, I don't know if you remember, but there was a character they called the Buddha boy who had sat down under a banyan tree for years. And I, I forget which country, it might have been Cambodia, but he was somewhere in Southeast Asia. And, you know, he sat under a banyan tree for, you know, a couple of weeks without moving to go to the bathroom or to eat or to drink. And it became such a hyped up thing that a lot of us were talking about the Buddha boy and thinking, wow, this could be like that kind of tree. Maybe if we sit under that tree, we'll have a similar experience. Um, so it's almost like there's a- there's The, the a, Bodhi tree. The Bodhi tree, very similar, yeah. yeah. And it's like there's a cliche now of, of Western hippie types going to India and seeking enlightenment and finding a guru. That's right. Um, and I never considered myself that type of person, but it's easy to become a cliche when all the circumstances align in a way that you're brought to a place where everyone believes in something really strongly. And in my entire life, even being raised Catholic, I never met a priest as passionate about Christianity as these random people off the street were about Nityananda. And I found that passion to be inspiring. I, I wanted to see what they were experiencing. So people need to know, like it is, I've, I've had a lot of people commenting that you have to be stupid to fall victim to a cult or really gullible. I think that it's a, it's an important thing for people to know, like, cultic groups exist in every arena like it's not just religion there's political cults and um you know cults in different corporate environments there was a movie about it once some social media commentary of a i think it was called oh i don't remember mm. the name 
but there, there was a group who invented a new social media app and it became um, necessary. The only way somebody could vote in an election was through that app. Mm-hmm. You know, it was Emma Watson. Um, sorry, I don't mean to totally. No, no, you're on, you're on, it's totally on track here. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's easy to get sucked into a cult when a group of people have the same goals that you have in life. You know, when a, when a group of people are all striving for enlightenment and having what they describe as beautiful experiences and breakthroughs in their meditation practice. And, you know, the other thing this Nithyananda group promoted was yoga. And the tagline for Life Bliss Engineering was have a yogic body and a Vedic mind. And so Vedic mind means the mindless mind. Um, He said that if you're constantly distracted by your thoughts, like what's for dinner, um, who am I going to marry, how will I raise my kids? What am I going to do at work tomorrow? You can never achieve anything because you're constantly running down these tangents of thought illusions. But if you're in a thoughtless space, the moment you want something, you'll have the perfect capacity to plan and to strategize and to get it. And so he described having the Vedic mind as being totally in tune with all the Vedic principles, capable of manifestation and beyond beyond the physical worldly attachments that hold us back from our full potential. He used a lot of jargon, like full potential, maximum physique, total perfect capacity. Um, In these days, he did not talk about powers, um, but powers became the hook a few years later. And I I guess into that later. I was reading about that. I was going to ask you about that, but I I get it how it evolved. And it's interesting that he was using again, very Scientology-esque language too, you know, full potential and all that is is definitely, uh, I mean, it's not like Scientology has the corner of the market on the term full potential, but it certainly is a term that is used in Scientology all over the place. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, See, yeah. That, oh, yeah. I wasn't among his first batch of initiated teachers, but people I've been talking to recently who were, Um, said that in his Los Angeles temple, which opened in 2005 or 2006, he gave the first batch of his ordained acharyas a copy of the Dianetics book. Each one was given Dianetics. And he told them, study this and learn this because this is similar to the Vedic teachings we are going to promote. And so that's almost like telling them we're going to rip this off, but put it in our own words. So study it well. And then let's come up with. Exactly. Right. I guess he did read Dianetics. It's a difficult book to read, but yeah, he, uh, I guess he had actually read the thing, which is interesting that he incorporated it into his belief system, but knowingly changed it, you know, or, but, but changed it just, just a bit. Like he knowingly incorporated it into his belief system and then claimed to be its origin. Right. You know, Elton Hubbard only scraped the surface of what the Vedas right. teach. And now I've come to planet Earth as the original source of this wisdom to bring it to its next updation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Matea? No, I haven't. So you might find this interesting uh, since you've not heard of this. Um, Elron Hubbard claimed to be um, the, um, what's the word, a, a prophetic uh, reincarnation of mm-hmm. Matea, uh, i.e. Buddha. 
this oh. was the idea that that there was uh, this was a made up prophecy. I mean, there is a prophecy. There's this Buddhist belief, and there is this Matea figure, but Hubbard absconded with it, changed it to fit him. Right. You know that some got man with flaming red hair from the <laughs> West would appear, you know, in X thousands of years to carry on the, you know, to meld the East and the West in this tradition. And Hubbard wrote an entire long epic poem called the Hymn of Asia or Hymn of Asia um, in the 1970s. I think he wrote it maybe in the 60s. And this was published and, and it's no longer published by Scientology. It's no longer a book that's in print by Scientology, but they did put it to music in the nineties. They oh. did a whole opera to this. Oh. And this, uh, am I Matea? And then, you know, this, this guy's singing, am I Matea? And, uh, and this was a thing in Scientology so much so that they actually got some Buddhist monks to come to Florida in Clearwater in the nineties and, do some ritual and acknowledge that Hubbard was this reincarnated Buddha or whatever. And it was apparently this, you know, it was just a couple Buddhists who did this yeah. or something. It didn't really have any staying power, but I, I thought you might find that a, a funny story because it's a part of the Scientology history that isn't really yeah. part of Scientology anymore, but it, but it, but it crops up from time to time when it's useful. Yeah. You know, this, this is a, this is how we're going to get, you know, the, the, the Buddhists or something into Scientology. So yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, so they were both messing with the yes, you know, with the lore to yeah. their advantage. Absolutely, you and I, I think that for these, you know, modern, he called himself a modern mystic back in yeah. 2009. So for these modern mystic types, um, claiming to be the reincarnation of some past mythical religious figure kind of legitimizes what they're teaching in the present because exactly. You know, it's it's like I could talk all day about this kind of thing, but I mean, um, what's his name? The Mormon with the golden tablets. He oh yeah, Joseph to, Smith. Yeah, Joseph Smith. He he had to legitimize his prophecies by um, aligning himself to some ancient, you know, wandering Hebrew tribes or the, the lost tribes. Like it, it's like they always find a way to um, boost their their present personification by drawing on some past figures. That's right. So, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. And I mean, Nityananda does this too. He claims to be the reincarnation of an ancient South Indian queen called Meenakshi, who was a goddess incarnated in the form of a ruler. Um, he also claims to be um, possessing the physiology of Venkateshwara, who is an incarnation of God Vishnu. And he claims to be the consciousness of Sadashiva. So here, like there, there are three main branches of Hinduism. Um, well, there are four actually. There's the Smarta branch that follows all the gods and goddesses. And I mean, Hinduism has about a million different gods. <laughs> right. It's, so exactly. it's a very, it's a difficult system to get your wits around. Because, yeah. And, and the you fact that it's in a whole other language doesn't make it a lot easier yeah. either. In, in multiple whole other languages too, like Sanskrit is a, right. is a scholarly language, and it's I'm still fascinated by Sanskrit. You know, computer programmers say that it is the world's most perfect language for writing programs because it leaves no room for misinterpretation. And you know, Sanskrit was not a natural language; it's a created language. 
Um, what was problematic in ancient India was that every village had its own unique written and spoken language. And so priests in one temple worshiping the same God as priests in another temple did it in a totally different language. And so an ancient group of scholars, from, from what I've read, and Nityananda claims no, uh, Lord Kalabhairava brought Sanskrit down to planet Earth intact and delivered it. But what scholars say happened, and I'm more aligned with their version of the story. Really? There was kind of a, a congregation of priests who decided that they would create a language that would be the universal language for Sanatana Dharma, which is the, the belief system and the cultural practices and the traditions of India. And that way from, you know, from the far north in the Himalayas down to the, the far south in Sri Lanka, they would use the same ritual prayers. They would use the same chants. And so they made Sanskrit. Well, the, the branches of Hinduism that are the most prominent are Smarta, which, you know, worships all the gods, um, Shaktism, which worships the goddess Shakti, Vaishnavism that worships the god Vishnu, who is like the maintainer of creation, and Shaivites who worship Lord Shiva, who can be called the destroyer or the rejuvenator, depending on how you see it. So, you know, Niti really cleverly claims he has the consciousness of Shiva and the physiology of Vishnu and um, the, the ruling capacity of the goddess in the form of Minakshi. So he's capitalized on every single, he claims to be an incarnation of all these gods or a Purnavatar. And that way, no matter which branch of Hinduism a person ascribes to, he sets himself up as being their god. Right. And so he's not humble. He's no. In fact, he, he brags. This is how not humble he is. He brags about the fact that he's not humble. Um, he says that, you know, humility is not actually a virtue. And, you know, if you're going to a surgeon, if, if a doctor says, oh, you know, I just, I do what I can do. And another doctor says, um, I, I graduated in the highest honors from the top medical school and I've performed 50 successful surgeries. Don't worry, I'll remove your tumor, no complications. You don't want to go to the humble one. You want to go to the one who has all the certification and who, who has um, the confidence to declare that he's going to cure you. So he right. says, clearly, he is like that master surgeon. This was one of his taglines back in 2009. Master wow. is the master surgeon who will remove your delusions. So it's, he's not humble. And he brags about being not humble. And in turn his disciples become very arrogant people who feel that they're following the ultimate incarnation and they have the best master and anybody wasting their time in any other tradition or any other spiritual practice other than nitties is wasting their life and they make no qualms about saying so very interesting and not surprising at all it leads me to this next question which is does he claim and I believe he does from what I was reading about him. Does he, but does he actually claim that he has all of these superpowers and abilities? I know that, I know that came later in the chain, but like even at this point in 2009, was he claiming that he had full enlightenment, that being the, the rebirth of these gods or the current incarnation of them gave him all of these powers and things? He, he actually said, yeah, I've got that. I've got that key to those. In 2009, he never claimed that he had powers, um, but he uh -huh. did claim be fully enlightened 
and that he was an incarnation. And he claimed that he is the source of all Hinduism who had reincarnated to bring people back to the core truth. And does, does that mean that he thinks or he would tell people he could just sit there and not think thoughts? He could just sit there and just be yeah. and that was yeah. his thing. That was his thing. And okay. he claimed that we could experience through entanglement by sitting in his presence. We could also go into that no thought state and that this was the goal of sitting with him. Um, he kind of redefined a lot of different words to mean what he wanted us to believe they meant. So there was a lot of double speak in his group. Like um, what would be an example of that? An example of that would be the Sanskrit word Upanishad, which is a, a form of scripture that gives people the ancient Rishi's definition of how to live the ideal enlightened life. He said Upanishad means sitting with the master, which meant him. So he, he was fairly reductionary in, in the way that he would present something, not necessarily give an opposite definition or a contradictory definition, but he would reduce it down to the most self-serving possible meaning that that word had. Right. So we all believe right. Upanishad means sitting in his presence. We believed darshan, which actually in Sanskrit means seeing the divine with your, with your physical eyes, um, as in going to a temple and you see the statue of the deity, the murti. I shouldn't say statue. See, the Hindus, um, they don't believe in worshiping the physical matter. They see the, the murti as a conduit through which the God expresses. Kind of like, I mean, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you um, but I'm seeing you through my computer screen. So in Hinduism, worshiping the deity is like worshiping the being through the screen of that statue. So darshan would normally mean when you go to a temple and you see the deity, he redefined that as seeing him. Right. So right. he cleverly inserted himself in the place of that deity. Um, and even right. the way he would define engram, the, the fact that it's different than the definition given by the man he learned it from, shows that you know he had a fairly self-centered way of defining reality and also making sure that his disciples didn't look into it further and find out that he was misleading us because he would say once you find your guru um don't listen to anybody else be singularly focused on your guru's teachings because otherwise you can get diverted and you can stray from the path and Wow, there's a lot of departure deter activity going on in this in this group. In other words, the things that the, the actively preventing people or trying to head them off at the pass to you know to deter their their leaving. Yes, absolutely. You know? yeah. absolutely. Uh, he would tell us that if you miss the master, meaning if you see him and then move on with your life and do something else, that you have turned down your possibility for enlightenment for multiple lifetimes that if a if a living incarnation appears to you and you say no thanks and you move on then you will not be graced by an enlightened master say for another hundred lifetimes and so there was a real fear implanted in us that we can't miss him uh, we have to jump in and he would even say jump now there's no such thing as later if you don't come to the program now you might as well never come and so there was a, a hard sales pressure that we have to go 
So right. after Kotaru, after we'd all had his blessings, one of his yoga teachers got on the stage and said, okay, so anyone who wants to come to India at the end of this year, if you want to be there, but you don't have the money to get there, come talk to me on the stage after the program. So I was one of the people, and there were about 250 participants at that Kalpataru. Of those, about 50 of us gathered on the stage afterwards to talk with this lady, Mama Nisha, about how we would get to India. And she started telling us, you know, anything you invest in Nityananda's mission, he will bless you to earn it back as soon as you come back from the program. So take a bank loan, don't worry about it. He will bless you to repay the loan. Borrow from your friends and family, he'll bless you. Mortgage your house, he'll bless you to repay that back after. Don't worry, just do it. And so after Kalpataru, my mission from September, I think it was September 21st, the date of that program, until November 15th, the day that Life Bliss Engineering started, I did everything in my power to get that money. And, you know, that means I, I was working seven days a week. Um, my boss was really cool about it, gave me as many shifts as I asked for. And I gave my notice and said, you know, November 12th will be my last day because it's, I have to take a big flight to India and I'll need to get a day's sleep to get over the jet lag before the program starts. And it's funny because the people in my life were all kind of saying, oh, okay, Sarah, like, good luck with that. They didn't really think I'd make it, but I was really determined. Um, and I, what was it, what would you say you was the focal goal? What was the thing that you thought all this work and all this sacrifice and quitting your job and all that and having to fly to India, you met this guy now, you've seen him on stage. Clearly, he convinced you, right? But what did he convince you of? What was it you thought you were going to get from this? Enlightenment. I thought he was going to give me enlightenment. And what does that mean? That like means you can go to the public library and get enlightenment. <laughs> so what, so what, what was that for you? So for me, enlightenment meant having the highest perspective, clearest universal consciousness, to understand everything. Um, okay. I should mention, like I said, I was really mystical at the time. I was into crystals and I was working professionally as a tarot card reader. And that's a lot to do with interpreting the meanings on cards. And I didn't see it as, I told people flat out, I don't predict the future because nobody can. The future depends on the choices you make and the actions you take. And so I would use the cards almost like a psychological jumping ground to help people strategize their decisions in life. It was, it was more a psychological exercise than anything else. Um, but I had a natural gift for kind of intuiting uh, the interpretations of those cards. Um, and I think that stems in my art history background. I was really interested in symbols. Um, you know, I, I love those Dan Brown books where he analyzes. <laughs> I've always been into this kind of stuff. Like, yep, give me yep. conspiracy theory and I will be hooked. You know, tell me about an ancient <laughs> symbol and I will dive into learning as much as I can about it. So what I believed was that if I got enlightenment, I could help people more profoundly than I could just by interpreting the symbols on cards or just by giving advice. I, I really felt a pull um, to, be a, to be a spiritually comforting presence for other people. Um, 
what I asked Nityananda for in Kalpataru, you know, this wish-fulfilling tree, you can ask him anything and he'll give it to you. I asked him if I, I told him that I would be fulfilled if I could bring love to people who didn't feel loved, if I could be a positive spiritual influence in people's lives. And he gave me a big hug and he told me he loved me and he said, you will be able to do it, my blessings, I'm with you, you'll be successful. So I felt that he had blessed me um, to be enlightened and to be a blessing in other people's lives. And I felt like going to his home in India for three months would prepare me for that, give me what I needed in order to be successful with that. And what so, happened when you went up to the stage and they, I mean, because obviously you got convinced and you did do the work to make it happen. Were they offering any discounts or something or what oh, was happening? No, no, no. They weren't offering discounts. No, they I didn't think so. I was curious. No, they were talking people into taking out bank loans. So what Right. Said, okay. Okay. You okay. Yeah, yeah. Have money for this eight thousand dollar program well do you right. have a card of course um, of course do you have a car that you can sell yeah so he learned that from scientology too <laughs> okay then yeah. absolutely that is yeah. I mean, after, uh, I, after my yeah. three talks with ron miscavige we're convinced that yeah he took a lot from scientology yeah, I, I am not. I am absolutely uh, no surprise. There are, and you have to be a little bit careful with this, of course, because we're primed to, you know, look for things that we have in common here. Yeah. And there is clearly going to be a lot from one cult yeah. to another, you know. It's just interesting because because um, there are parallels here that are probably not coincidental. Some of them could be, but, you know, the Westboro Baptists or the FLDS, for example, I mean, the, the, you know, the fundamental LDS guys, um, those are definitely destructive cults. There's all kinds of abuse that goes on in them, but they're not standing on stages telling people to take out mortgages to their houses or sitting in, a, in an office in high pressure, you know, hard sell. This is the most important thing in your life. You know, they're not doing that. They're doing they're doing other stuff, right? So it's, yeah. So you're going to see similarities and differences between these groups, but it's so funny when you see such parallels, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Because uh, yeah. it's, it's, it speaks to the money grab aspect of this, oh, you know, wow. that, that the money is, you know, okay, we're going to talk you into, we're going to pump you up and, and yeah. give you all these alternative solutions that are going to put you in a worse place. But the promise, yeah. and this is, this is right out of Scientology too, you will get it back a hundredfold, right? You will get it back. And the, and the way it's talked about in Scientology is if you, if you outflow, you will inflow. If you make a positive postulate, this is, the, this is the term in Scientology, a postulate. Your postulate is your intention as a spiritual being, right? You intend something to happen and it's gonna happen because that's how all of this happens, right? We create it. So postulates, right? So if you put a clean, pure postulate out there, it'll come true, right? Because it's, it's totally magical thinking, obviously. But when you're in that, you know, mindset where flows are real and postulates are a thing and, you know, and it's not just positive thinking, it's, it's like really like you're putting it out there, man. And of course, if it doesn't happen, well, you didn't postulate it right. You know, you didn't, That's it's it. on you. It's, it's on not, you. 
Yeah, it's not the it's not the salesperson or yeah. or Nitty who's at fault or Hubbard. You know, they're never they're never wrong. It's it's you. You didn't get it right. Absolutely. So it's is anyway. I just kind of find it funny, and I have to bring up something else before I forget because I've never mentioned this before in any video, and and you reminded me of it. So I thought it would be another parallel in a way. When you're getting recruited into the C organization, which is basically what you were getting recruited to do, going off to India and eventually working for this this outfit um you're told one of the re one of the one of the ways that you're kept from backing out of the recruit cycle they call it right when you when you're you know you might be sitting for hours or even days with a sea org recruiter just pounding on you pounding on you pounding on you all the reasons you should join the sea org save mankind it'll be good for you etc cetera, etc cetera. um you're told okay i've now given you all this knowledge about how the world is, about how screwed up everything is, about how you could do something about it. If you don't act, if you fail to do this, knowing what you now know, your life is going to go into the sewer. You're going to put yourself right in the drain because you know what your responsibility is. You now know this that you didn't know before. I could have given you a pass before, but now... Now I've enlightened you. This is actually the word that's used in Scientology. I have enlightened you about the true conditions of things. So it's not me saying to you that you're going to go and, and, and your life is going to go in the gutter if you don't do this. You're the one who's going to make that happen because you're making an ethical choice right now to not join the Sea Org, which you know is the ethical thing to do. So you're choosing the evil path now. You're taking the, you know, you're taking the blue pill and you're going to pretend like you don't know this anymore. And as a result, I'm just telling you as a safe, you know, as a, as a service to you, as your recruiter, as your Sea recruiter, I'm telling you, you know, you don't act on this. And I've seen people whose lives, they became alcoholics. I knew a guy who went on and got drugs. I just had to bring that up because I've never, I, I forgot all about that. That was part of the recruitment. And it just reminded me of what you were talking about there. Yeah. So, I mean, two things. Now I'm going to get diverted. <laughs> um, the nitty word for postulate is sankalpa. It's a yogic intention. So if you decide to do something in your regular day-to-day -day life, it's an unconscious decision. But if you decide to do something from the space of consciousness, you set the sankalpa. So don't just decide to come to lifeless engineering. Set a sankalpa. Align all of your actions towards fulfilling it, and it will come true. There you so go. That's, that's how he does this. And as far as recruitment goes, like after I spoke out against Nithi, um, that kind of broke the ice on social media. A lot of people who have been abused by his cult have been scared to come forward because he employs another Scientology strategy, which is like fair game. He doesn't call it fair game, but he, uh, his organization, for example, will accuse somebody of a crime they didn't commit if mm -hmm. they vote against him. Um, they'll, they'll go to every extreme to commit character assassination. And people have actually disappeared in India who spoke out against him. So it's extremely dangerous for his ex-followers in India to come forward to the public. 
So I kind of spoke out from the safety of my home in Canada, my undisclosed location, um, where I know they can't reach me and I have an unlisted address now. Um, I won't even say in interviews, like I, I mentioned this to you when you asked me, where do I live? I said, as long as I don't have to tell you in the podcast, because they could send somebody after me. And that's what they've done to people. So after I came out, that kind of um, gave a lot of the other ex-followers courage to come forward. And one of my friends um, who had been one of my critics up till a week before he did this, um, he started a group on Facebook called Nityananda Cult Survivors. And someone posted in that group something that your Sea Org recruitment um, description reminds me of. He said that he went up to Nityananda once in a darshan, similar to when I went up and said, okay, I want to bring love into the world. He went to Nityananda and he was a really inspired, creative young man. He, he was going to universities. He studied music. He was a very talented musician. I shouldn't say was. He's still alive. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but uh, he went to Niti and he asked him, what's the purpose of my life? And Niti told him, the purpose of your life is to be my sannyasi. And sannyasi is like the Niti version of Sea Org. It's, it's a monastic disciple, fully surrendered, who lives and volunteers freely for the mission, follows his orders, doesn't think for themselves, does whatever he tells them to do, wearing an orange-colored robe. That's a sannyasi. So he told this young man, you are born to be my sannyasi and anything else you do in life will be a failure until you become a sannyasi. And that, that guy wasn't ready for that level of commitment. So he left the program, went back home again, um, and felt completely lost in life. He had no passion for his schooling anymore because he felt, what's the point? It's going to be a failure. It was like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, everything that he attempted became a failure because he believed he was a failure for not becoming a sannyasi. And just like these people enlightening the Sea Org recruits, there were sannyasis who would circle the hall during any of these programs, during the lunch breaks and the dinner breaks and say, Swamiji is calling you. You should live here. Why are you going home after the program? Now that you know Sadashiva himself is alive and form on planet Earth, if you leave and go back to your mundane life, you're doing a disservice to humanity. It's a disservice to yourself. How could you miss your calling like this? You know, and they would say, people in the world who are ignorant, who don't know Niti exists, they're blind. But if you know he exists and you're not following him, you're worse than blind. That's, that is destroying yourself. And similarly, they would tell us, you know, people become drug addicts if they hear about him and leave. Um, they get swayed by demons. I mean, it comes way later in my story, but the character assassination they're doing against me um, to the brainwashed members of his cult now is that they are, he is telling people if they follow him, he will lead them to Kailasa, which is the abode of Sadashiva. And if they follow me, I will kill them and lead them to hell. So he right. has literally called me a demon of death. And that, you know, and another silly thing they're saying is that I'm trying to start my own cult. And 
I mean, I told you right off the bat, I, I had magical thinking back. I mean, I still think tarot cards are really cool and fascinating and beautiful, but I would never base my life decision on those again. And I am no longer reading them. I wouldn't, I would never again put myself in a position where I told people that I have the answers for their life. You know, I kind of learned my lesson the hard way by seeing how Nitti destroys people's lives. It's not a good thing to do. Um, well, certainly not the way he's doing it. And certainly not the way L. Ron yeah. Hubbard is doing it, you know? Right. And, uh, and I know I mean, you're pretty... Good. Yeah, exactly. Hey guys, time for a little break to talk about a new product I think is pretty cool, and I think you will too. This is actually at the funding stage, and we're working to see if we can get these items financed and produced. So what is it? They're called Curated Care Crates. Ashley Pike, the creator, recently had a couple of family and friends in the hospital for major surgery and wanted to do something to help them out during their convalescence. When she went online to find what kind of care packages she could send, all she found were teddy bears and candy. These are nice sentiments, but are really not very helpful for someone who's stuck in recovery for a month or two or longer. This really bothered Ashley, and she decided to do something about it to help not just her family, but others too. After surveying friends and family in the medical industry, as well as people who have had long stays in hospitals, Ashley's simple solution was to create customizable care packages with things like robes, chapstick, toothbrushes, hairbrushes, earphones, earplugs, and other things that would help a person feel human in a time when it's really hard to feel human. Of course, beyond the walls of hospitals, curated care crates are useful for people in all kinds of situations at home or abroad. They've created various levels and types of crates, including an activity crate, a cosmetic crate, a cozy crate, and crates in various sizes. Check out the link you see on the screen here. It's also in the description section of this video and contribute to making the curated care crates a reality. If you pledge a certain amount, you will receive one of their boxes early, starting with the activity crate for $30. The higher the amount you pledge, the larger the box you'll receive, which includes some of the higher value items and even the chance to name and create your own crate as part of their product line. The link is igg.me slash at slash curated care crates. That's igg.me slash at slash curated care crates. Check them out. You know, you're, you're just a year out, right? A little yeah. over a year out. And, yeah. um, and there's a long road here. You were involved for nine years and I can just tell you from experience that it's, yeah. you know, it takes a while to get over some of this stuff. Don't sell yourself too short. You know what I mean? In terms of uh, things you will or won't do in the future. But uh, certainly I think you and I both know now that there are pitfalls to taking on the role of teacher. Yes. You know, yeah. and uh, and and some of these cult leaders uh, not only seem to fall into these pitfalls, they seem to embrace them and Absolutely. love them and, you know, think yeah. that this is the way to be. So I'm sure, you know, that you and I will not be falling into that mode, you know, but right now oh. you are teaching people something and that yeah. is a good thing. So that's true. Yeah. Um, what I what I mean, I, I should clarify that and say, um, I'll present the information that I have to people, but yeah. I would never sit somebody down and say, if you if you go to Nithinanda's program and you don't listen to me, 
that's destroying your life. You know, of course. No. <laughs> so what's ironic is that to, to do his character assassination against me, he is telling them that I'm starting my own cult of anti-cults. And what's hilarious is that somebody posted one of the hate sites created by Scientology against Leah Remini and said, see, she's trying to be another Leah Remini in the world. She's trying to start, she's out for attention. Um, Nit, they'd say Nitti didn't give me enough attention in the cult. And so I ran away in what they call incompletion. And now I'm trying to get attention by doing this. And right. it's, it's just ridiculous because you cannot start an anti-cult cult. That means you're telling people be self-sovereign, be empowered within yourself. Don't fall victim to letting somebody else make all the decisions for you in life. And think clearly, do self-examination, question your teachers. I mean, I, I think it's fair to say that I wouldn't expect somebody to watch my YouTube videos and believe what I'm telling them unless they question me and look into my past and find out what's my track record. That's something that they should do. And unfortunately, I spent nine years promoting a cult organization that I believed in at the time. So for sure, I've been led astray and I've led people astray. But I think once you climb out of that and start learning about why it happened and how you fell into that trap, you can really help people to avoid falling into that trap themselves. Fair enough. So, yeah. You know, Nitti would really, truly recruit people into his sannyas order by cursing them, by saying, if you do anything else in life other than this, you'll never be a success. Wow. It's, a, it's an interesting mechanism. And there's just one of thousands that these guys use. You know yeah. what I mean? I'm not even trying to highlight it as something special. It's just, oh. uh, it's just so fascinating that these things parallel the way that they do. I, and I think some of what we're talking about is coincidental, you know, in terms of parallels, because uh, the other thing I've said about this is that, um, it, you know, it's, it, there are only so many ways to control people. Yeah. There are only so many ways you can do it. There's only so many ways you can phrase certain things or certain ideas and, you know, guilt, putting guilt on somebody, fear of future consequences. I mean, all these fear tactics that get used, these fear mongering is just one of many tools that are used. Love bombing, the exact opposite of this yeah. is yeah. also a thing, right? And, and oh, yeah, yeah, you play people's emotions like a piano is what you're trying to yeah. do with this. And, and by doing that, you are keeping them from thinking very much about what's going on because they're experiencing this, they're having this emotional experience, which they find either very horrible and they're all caught up in that and the guilt and the, and the fear or the admiration and awe, which is 10 times more powerful, by the way, uh, the love bombing part. Right. And you just like, Oh my God, these people, well, they're amazing. Yeah. yeah. I just want to do anything I can to be part of this group because they're so amazing. Because yes, you don't go to get, you don't go to work and get love bombed. No. You don't go to your family reunion and get love bombed. You know, you don't go home and get love bombed. Most of the time you go home and you're like, you know, take out the trash. Where's what's for dinner? You know, all these crazy yeah. stuff. You go to work and it's deadlines and pressure and you're not getting paid enough. And when's the, you know, maybe you'll get a promotion. So in people's regular Western existence, at least, yeah. these things don't, happen so when they do their their unusual marked events for a person that, that somebody's talking to them with real talk 
yeah. you know, quote unquote, right? And it's not real talk, it's just more bullshit, but it's laid on as this special experience that they're having. And they then assign it all this, you know, importance, blah, blah, blah. So anyway, it's just kind of, kind of funny how all this stuff works, really. I'm, uh, of course, the key question now that I have on my mind that I must ask you about is, uh, when did you join uh, Nitty Sea Org? <laughs> well, I, I can tell you that as soon as I got to his ashram in 2009 for that lifeless engineering, my yep. goal was to become one of his sannyasis. Right. And at that point in time, this was what we were told, like the love bombing started. People would tell us, you're only here because you are more spiritually evolved than everybody else on the planet. <laughs> there yes, are, there, there are, you go. You know, there's a living avatar right here in this hall. And if, if, if all 7 billion human beings knew who he was, they would all be crowding to get here but only the chosen few will actually make it and answer his call and know who he is. And it, it's like they were fawning all over us saying, you know, good for you. You saw who he was. You recognized the call. You made it. And, you know, we were love bombed. We were told we are the elite of the world. We are the greatest humans on the planet. And that in fact, it was our calling to become superhumans. And he would go into this really pseudoscience-y jargon of, of telling us, you know, the, the history of Darwinian evolution, that, you know, the first species on the planet were amoeba and they became fish and fish became monkeys and monkeys became humans. And now humans are going to become superhumans, but only those humans who are initiated by the living avatar. And so we were told, you know, everyone else out there, they are evolutionarily lower than you. And you're here to become this next elite. And he would quote, like, it, it would be um, unfair to say that he was just copying L. Ron Hubbard and Gurdjieff and Osho. Um, he was copying every single master in known history. He claimed that Mahavatar Babaji, who is famous in the autobiography of a yogi for being like the head of Yogananda's Sampradaya, Niti claimed that it was Babaji who gave him the name Nityananda. And, you know, he talks about a master called Aurobindo from Pondicherry, India, who said that it was his mission in life to create a new species of superhumans. Well, Niti claims um, what Yogananda attempted and failed, and what Aurobindo came close to achieving but died before it was realized, he is here to fulfill that. And so suddenly, anybody who comes to him who used to follow Yogananda, who maybe read autobiography of a yogi and wished that they could have met Yogananda, or you know, who heard about TM but didn't actually get to meet Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, Niti claims he's also the next evolution from Maharishi, all of their followers suddenly think, wow, this is great. You know, I used to... Um, pity myself that I didn't get to meet the master while he was alive, but here's an even greater master who's going to take what that lesser master started and see it through to completion. So he's really, like you said, he's not humble. And he, <laughs> he is the fulfillment of all the hard work that all these other, um, all these other spiritual leaders have started. Right. 
Yeah. So how, what was the, uh, in, in, as best you can recall, at least when you went over to India to do this thing yeah. and, um, you know, how, what was the, what would you say the age demographic was of the people who actually flew over there? Were they your age mostly, or were there was a, were the, was it a wide variety or? Yeah, I was 24 at the time mm -hmm. when I first went there in November, 2009, I turned 25 during that program. And I was one of the youngest people there. Um, the average demographic for his sannyasis at that time, and it's interesting, like at that point in time, the majority of his sannyasis were Indian youth. So young people age, I would say like 17 to 24 from India, whose families had gone to some of his less expensive programs in India. He would do a, a four day program called uh, NSP, Nityananda Spurana program, which means the flowering of eternal bliss in your being. And for people in India, that four day program was only about, you know, a, say a thousand rupees, which is $20. Like he gave very, very inexpensive programs all across India, comparatively in inexpensive. For people in rural places in India, that's a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, compared to the 8,000 that Western people had to pay when they went there, that's, that's peanuts. So from those programs, he was really heavily recruiting college students, university students, young people from India. And he even said that, you know, in the Vedic scriptures, it says that the person should live a family life up until their kids have kids, and then they can take sannyas. That's when they dedicate the rest of their life to serving divinity. And he said, that's ridiculous. That's bullshit. That's stupid. Why would you dedicate your last few years when you're useless? You can't contribute. You've already given your contribution to society. So what are you going to do? Just sit there and meditate and die? No. Um, he'd go into a rant and I'm mimicking him. These aren't my words. These are his words. Thank you for catching that. <laughs> no, while you're still young and vibrant and capable, donate the best years of your life to God because then you'll make an impact. And he actually had a training program for sannyasis that was called High Impact. And he told these Indian youth that the best, I'm sorry, high tech, it was called high tech. And he said that would be the highest impact you can make on the world. And it was basically like a boot camp a spiritual boot camp where they did lots of manual labor. They did the construction in the ashram and they did like 18 hours of forced physical labor every day, sleep deprived, underfed. They would sometimes sneak into the lifeless engineering hall to try to get some scraps of the food served to the paid participants who ate much better than the residents did. But of course that was all hidden from the residents. So sorry, from the participants. So yeah. I went through that three-month program, and the majority of the days, sorry, I kind of, I avoided your earlier question of how did I join his Sea Org, so I'm building well, up. I know we're getting to that, so. Yeah, we're getting to that. Yeah. So the three-month program was intense, but it wasn't, it wasn't uncomfortably intense. Um, we slept about seven hours a night, which is a luxury in his organization. Um, we were dismissed around 11 p.m. or midnight. Um, most nights ended with his darshan, and people who wanted more sleep would queue up at the front of the line, and as soon as he touched them, they could go off to bed. And 
you know, in, in that way, people could kind of plan their day and determine how much sleep they'd get. We started the day at 5.55 a.m. for yoga. So we did an hour of yoga, then meditation, then his discourse. And throughout the day, we would study yoga teacher training material. So some people got certification in yoga teaching. Uh, we also studied something called life bliss teaching so people could get certified. I was given a certificate um, that meant I could teach his philosophy. You know, I was qualified as an acharya to teach from a book that he wrote. Actually, he didn't write any books. He had a team of people who would transcribe his discourses and put them into a book format and publish them, but he took credit. So he, it's like he had a team of ghostwriters. Right. And and they would compile these books that he claimed he wrote. Um, and one was called Guaranteed Solutions. So we spent two weeks of that lifeless engineering program was dedicated to reading Guaranteed Solutions over and over and over and over. We were told we had to read it 15 times um, and that we had to be able to quote it back verbatim. Because if we put his teachings into our own words, like if we paraphrased, that was the equivalent of misguiding a person. We had to teach it as he wrote it. And we believed he wrote it at that time because that's what we were told. So two weeks we had to study that book and then we had to present the material one by one on stage. And so a person would go onto the stage and the teacher training us to be teachers would say, okay, in um, the third chapter where he's talking about the Sahasrara Chakra, what does he say is the main block for that chakra? And we had to parrot back verbatim what that chapter said. And only the people among us who memorized the content were given the certification. Um, and I mean, I, I considered myself kind of a rebel at the time because I thought this is stupid. I don't, I don't need to memorize the book if I own the book. So I only read it once. Um, and I, I enjoyed it. It was, a, it was a good, helpful read for me. Um, and somehow I was able to kind of bullshit my way through the teacher's training. Like when they said, okay, today we're going to, we're going to question you about this chapter. I would quickly reread it. So I'd be able to memorize it back. But, um, you know, the three month program was enjoyable enough that I still wanted to be a sannyasi. But when the program ended, they interviewed all of us and anybody who didn't have a university degree was told go home finish your degree and then come take sannyas so since i had only done two years towards my four-year bachelor of fine arts degree that meant i didn't qualify and i was extremely disappointed um so i thought okay that sucks i guess i have to go back to vancouver i'd already broken lease on my apartment quit my job sold all my stuff i only owned indian clothes because i was convinced i was going to become a sannyasi so, oh, so you went there thinking you were joining yeah. up? Absolutely. I okay. Okay. All right. Just... I, got, I got denied. I was underqualified. They, they would only accept people with a university degree. That is fascinating to me. That definitely goes against the grain of every other cult cool. I've ever heard of. Don't get too stuck <laughs> on that. That changes very rapidly. After the Life Bliss Engineering program ended, it was early February 2009. And I was traveling with two of my friends who, one was from Kentucky, one was from France. We met at the program. And, you know, all three of us had the plan that after Life Bliss Engineering, 
we would travel around India a little bit and see some of the temples. So we decided safety in numbers. And so the three of us went out together and we kind of plotted a fairly random course where uh, we, we just went to the Bangalore bus station and decided whatever bus leaves next, that's the bus we're going to hop on and see where it takes us. And it just happened to take us to a city called Chennai, which is one of the biggest cities in the state of Tamil Nadu. And as we pulled into the bus stop, Nityananda was having a Kalpataru program right across the street. And so we assumed it was fate that we had been brought right back to our guru. And that really gave us the confirmation bias that, wow, we're in the right place at the right time. It's meant to be. So we went into that seminar and, you know, we got there towards the last hour of the program. So Nitti was on stage blessing all the locals and it was a huge crowd, thousands of people. Um, so we really believed he is popular in India and, you know, that, that again solidified our faith in him to see all these people rushing the stage to get his attention. And it was also really interesting to notice how heavy the security was because Lifeless Engineering, there were about 500 to 600 participants, um, mainly Westerners or non-resident Indians, fairly wealthy people. And there was no security, security at all. Like Nithi sat on the stage giving his discourse. But here with these thousands of people from Tamil Nadu, um, there were security guards pushing the crowd back. It's like he, he, it was like seeing a rock concert. You know, people were maybe not moshing, but they were trying to kind of fight each other to get closer to him. And when the program ended, the sannyasis who were there with Nithi were doing the grunt work to clean up. So they, they were packing away all the gifts that had been given to him on the stage, cleaning the tea sections where tea had been served to people. And I noticed there was one Canadian guy among all these Indian sannyasis, and his name was Spencer. He was an actor from Vancouver, somebody who I had met at the Life Bliss Center in Vancouver. And, you know, I, I waved at him and my friends were excited to see him. And he ran up to us and he looked sick. Um, you know, when I had met him, he was fairly healthy, but now he had deteriorated to this stick figure type, um, really skinny, big black circles under his eyes. He looked depressed. And he said to us, you know, I know all three of you wanted sannyas. You wanted to stay back as ashramites and live with Nithi. Don't do it. Like, save yourselves. It's not what you think it's going to be. And you know, there was a fairly heavy recruitment effort at our program telling us if you enjoy the program, you should stay forever and live with Nityananda. Don't you want to be in your master's breathing space, his energy field? And so this was the first time we'd heard somebody saying, don't do it. And I asked him why, like, what's so bad about it? And he said, you know, the quality of food they give you when you're a paid participant is not the same as what you're given when you stay back as a sannyasi. Like we're living on white rice and sambar, which is like a, a runny kind of spicy Indian soup. Um, so it's, it's like a low protein, low vegetable, low nutrient, high carb diet. Um, sorry, just if anybody's wondering what that sound is in the background, it's my cat playing with a toy that has a ball in it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they're going a little crazy today. Um, but yeah, he, he had told us this is like living in hell. It's the worst experience I could imagine. 
And we asked him like, well, why don't you come with us? Travel India, you can leave, we'll take you. And he said, no, I'm not allowed. I, they won't let me leave. And of course, um, the ashram has a huge barbed wire fence around the perimeter. There's guards at the security gate with nightsticks and they're ready to push you back in and they won't open the gate unless you have approval from Nithi to leave. And this is where the um, the conference was held that you went to, the, yes. the work, the uh, what do you call it, a workshop? A... It was called Kalpataru. It's, it's not really a workshop. It's something fairly unique to India uh, where these self-proclaimed enlightened masters will sit on a stage and give blessings to people who come up to them. So, I mean, this is unique to Nithi's organization. Um, other masters will have things that they call satsang. Nithi has that also, um, where the, the leader gives a discourse and people discuss it afterwards and usually do some form of meditation. Um, in this variation, like you've probably heard of Amma the Hugging Saint, how she'll sit there and give hugs to people who stand up in queue. Um, it's similar to that, only instead of hugs, he gives these darshan blessings, touches people on the head. So yeah, it was after that workshop. And, you know, we all just thought, well, you know, I guess Spencer wasn't ready for this kind of a lifestyle. Maybe he, he was accustomed to luxury. He, he doesn't like the food. Well, we, we were all strict vegetarians anyway, so it probably won't be as difficult of an adjustment for us as it was for him. And Right. So in comes all the motivated reasoning as to why you can right. discount what he had to say. Absolutely. We He's literally looking at you, begging you not to continue yeah. with this, telling you I'm trapped here. Yep. And you're like, ah. He's a complainer. You know, maybe Jesus, man. it might not be so hard for the rest of us. And, you know, wow. nice of them to try to help, but we made up our minds. Let me ask you, just to, I'm just going to insert here, just because I have to, I'm wondering about it. It seems like a good time to ask. What, in looking back at where you were at, you know, then, not everything you know now. Right. But in your headspace at that time, that's a pretty powerful encounter for somebody who's in it. You know, this would be, you know, in Scientology, if a Sea Org member said, hey, man, don't fucking do it, you know? Right. Like, that'd be pretty intense, right? And clearly, if it was found out, that Sea Org member or that person would get in a whole lot of trouble for, for doing that, right? Um, what would it have taken? What would he have had to have said to you? Or was there anything he could have said to you at that moment? that would have changed your mind about what you were involved in? There's, there's nothing he could have said that would have changed my mind at that point. Okay. Uh, we had just finished a three-month program that was designed to indoctrinate us into that belief system. Right. And it's, it's hard to explain to somebody who has never been there, but everyone in the program, the maximum sleep we got per night was seven hours. And that's a luxury for that campus um, because the people living as sannyasis get two to four. Um, but I've, I've read research that shows, you know, if you have eight hours of sleep per night, that's ideal. If you get seven hours of sleep, you'll be a little bit groggy. Um, two days in a row with only seven hours of sleep, you'll be even, even less um, mentally prepared to handle certain situations. So we had gone three months in a row with definitely less than seven hours per sleep of sleep per night. 
Um, so we weren't thinking in the same way that we would had we been, you know, just in a hotel or in a, in a Western setting, kind of designing our own routines. Um, yeah, that makes sense. So we, we, were, we were sleep deprived. We were constantly being fed the rhetoric of the group. Um, it, it's, it almost, it doesn't have its own language, but it changes the definitions of certain words in a way that what means one thing to the outside world means something different to Nityananda disciples. Um, so we were told life here is bliss, but their definition of bliss is not happiness and joy. Their definition of bliss is a purpose-oriented lifestyle. And so somebody could be overworked, underappreciated, devalued, um, bullied for having any kind of emotional reaction whatsoever to the difficulty of the life. But they would be told, you are in bliss right now. This is a really good point. I am really glad you just brought that up because the loaded language is, you know, I've discussed this at length and every cult expert does. It's, it's, yeah. it's just a, a key tool in the toolbox. But it also is, it's the deception of loaded language can be crafty. It can be tricky, right? You can fool outsiders with this. Yes. Um, in fact, I was talking to my wife last night about a, a totally separate issue, but I brought up, well, what if this, in, in this case, it had to do with fundamentalist Christian women who are in these quiverful families who, you know, have 10, 20 kids and will tell you they're happy. I said, yeah. well, look, they, you know, what if they say they're happy? Yeah. And they say, well, yes, I'm happy, right? And then you have to go, well, they're happy. But it occurs to me exactly like as you're talking here, right, that mm -hmm. when they're saying happy, that might not necessarily mean exactly what you think. You know, if you said, I'm leading, you know, how are you doing? Oh, I'm full of bliss. Yeah. You know, that would communicate something to, uh, at least certainly to a Westerner, that you're happy, you're joyous, you're, you know, you're awe-inspired to be there. But if you're actually communicating, I'm working in hard, you know, disciplined dedication to my master, and I'm willing to, you know, live this, or I'm, I'm being forced to live this lifestyle of, you know, an ascetic, and, and I'm barely eating, and I'm barely sleeping, none of those things are communicated with the word bliss. No. So exactly. it's really powerful as a, as a defense mechanism even to redefine mm -hmm. these terms. And that's an angle I hadn't really get, talked about or given a lot of thought to before. So I'm really, really glad you brought that up. Yeah, thank you. Be because that was the main confusion for all of us is that we go to this program and we're promised yogic body and Vedic mind. We're promised that we're going to experience bliss. We're, we're told that we're going to experience firsthand all the sacred Hindu concepts of divinity, like samadhi, which is being beyond thinking, being beyond the mind. And so we go there with these full expectations. And as soon as we saw things that contradict our idea of bliss or our idea of yogic body or our idea of Vedic mind, we are immediately corrected and told, well, it was your misunderstanding of what this means that made you expect it to be comfortable or peaceful or friendly. I, I remember another major culture shock that I had first going to the ashram was the amount of yelling that went on behind the scenes. Like 
I had pictured a, a kind of a Buddhist monastery, sort of a peacefulness to be to be there. Um, I've seen Buddhist temples before, and usually the monks are either silent or very soft-spoken. They deal with each other in a friendly way, if not a little stoic, they're still kind to each other. But in the Nityananda cult, as soon as you enter the campus, if somebody takes a step in the wrong direction, people will be yelling and screaming, you buffalo, you idiot, you donkey, what are you doing? Get back in line. And that wasn't something that that sits well with a western person we no it doesn't <laughs> if you yell at somebody and call them a stupid dumb donkey you know that those are fighting words you know <laughs> yeah they and certainly so can that, be yeah, yeah the, the amount of conflict that went on and so when we whenever we raise the question well if this is such a blissful place why is everyone yelling at each other and why do they have such a short fuse and get angry so easily and we were told that there's a concept in Shaivite Hinduism of the Shiva Linga, of this beautiful kind of cosmic egg-shaped um, shaft of, of infinite light. A lot of the Shiva temples, instead of a statue of Shiva, they install what's called the Linga. And it's a beautifully polished rock um, shaped some would say like, like a phallus, that's in some of their scriptures. Others would say like a cosmic egg. So we were told that the ashram was created in a way that each of us comes in as a rough rock. And every time somebody yells at us or pushes us or hits us the wrong way, we're getting chipped at and polished until we become lingas, until we become these beautifully shaped, smooth-edged rocks. And so there was always a reason for everything. If, if anything seemed like it was bad, we were told it's our perception that sees it as bad, but actually this is the purpose it's serving. And so by the end of it, whatever happened, we assumed was perfect. That uh, is, uh, that's such a trope. Yeah. That whole egg thing, the, the, the being carved thing. Yeah. It, I immediately, what immediately came to mind was what I was told in the Sea Org. And this, I don't know if this was from Hubbard or not. I don't think it was, but it was used on me in the Sea Org. And it was that you create diamonds by heat and pressure. There you go. That's the equivalent. That's right. Yeah. Right. Because you, you know, you put enough heat and pressure on, on yeah. somebody though. It, and, and the analogy also fit to, you know, and it, you know, you take coal, right. And you, and you put enough heat and pressure on it and turn it into a diamond. And if it turns into, you know, liquid and 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 dissolves well it wasn't meant to shine anyway yes exactly and yeah. and we were told the, the, something very similar that if somebody runs away before the master has completed his surgery and that's the the parallel they would give imagine if somebody had their chest cut open in the middle of open heart surgery they they wake up and they run away they're ruined for life right and we were told the same way if somebody gets up and leaves before the program is over that's like somebody leaving the surgeon's table they will never be right again and so there was a lot of fear-mongering that you cannot leave this program until the three months are finished because if you try to go back into society before you've completed life bliss engineering you'll be in a worse place than you were before you entered the ashram on day one right. so nobody had the thought of running away or leaving um, because there were frightening possibilities that would happen as a result of just getting up and walking away. 
So, you know, seeing Spencer, it did leave an imprint on me. I did kind of wonder, is it as bad as he says it is? Or was he exaggerating? Was he, you know, maybe he was having a bad week and finally he saw some Western people he could vent to. Um, so it, it it's not that I completely ignored what he said, but we did kind of write it off and assume that's just his perception. Wow. But, okay. Yeah. What got really strange was our travels eventually led us to a beautiful ancient city called Hardwar in North India. And in, in Haridwar, there was a Kumbh Mela festival happening, which is when astrologically the date is, is given when the water of Ganga becomes Amrita or the nectar of immortality. And it's a, it's a major pilgrimage. Like Hindus are told at least once in your life, go to Kumbh Mela and immerse yourself in this sacred water at that right time. And it's, it's like a huge spiritual party. Like the leaders of all the different Hindu organizations show up with their disciples and times are allotted for each group to go into the water. And we knew that Nityananda was supposed to be there with a camp set up for all of his disciples. And we thought maybe we could do some volunteering since we were there anyway. And one of the things his camp was going to do um, is distribute free food to the pilgrims. Um, because at Kumbh Mela, no money is supposed to change hands for anything. So if you visit a guru's camp, you're given the initiation for free. You're given the food for free, a place to stay for free. Um, so we thought we might as well pitch in and serve some of the food. And as we were walking around the camp, of course, we're wearing these necklaces that I swore I'd never wear that had Nithi's face on them. So we were very visibly his disciples. Um, and people were looking at our malas and pointing and saying, bad, bad, sex swami, bad swami. And we were thinking, like, who do they think he is? Like, don't they know he's Nityananda? Like, he's this embodiment of eternal bliss. Um, and then finally, somebody saw our confusion and recognized that we didn't understand why people were kind of shaming us for wearing these malas. And he said, well, haven't you guys seen the news? And we hadn't, we'd been traveling. Usually we, we would take the bus all night, sleep on the bus and wherever, whichever temple town we landed in during the day, we would explore it and then get on a train and sleep on the train. So no, we hadn't seen a television. Uh, we didn't have, inter this was still 2010. So we didn't have Wi-Fi on our cell phones. Um, so no, we, we didn't know the news. And they said, well, your Swami, was caught having sex with an actress named Ranjita. And the video has spread all over India. It's the top news. It's playing 24 seven on Sun TV. Um, just go into town and check it out. So we went to like into the town of Haridwar and checked into a motel and turned on the TV. And sure enough, there's our guru in bed with a woman. And he claimed that he's a celibate sannyasi, that, that he even told us the only way to realize enlightenment and to maintain the physiology of enlightenment is through celibacy. So here he's violating one of his core principles and his core teachings. And, you know, there was also a rape charge filed against him by another lady who was volunteering for him named Ardi Rao. And her name wasn't released yet to the public. We were told an anonymous volunteer has accused him of rape. And the worst thing was that he was on the run. There was a police investigation. Police had gone to the ashram to arrest him. He was missing. He didn't show up at his camp at the Kumbh Mela. And so he was really like a fugitive. 
And I, I was pissed. Like I took my mala and threw it on the ground and said, like, forget this. I'm not following a fraud. I'm, I'm not going to put all of my faith into somebody, you know, who preaches one thing and practices something else. And we even got emails. Like we went to an internet cafe and had received emails from Mama Nisha, one of the main teachers of that lifeless engineering program saying it's dangerous to openly follow Nityananda right now. So hide your malas. If you insist on wearing them, tuck them into your clothes. Don't tell anybody you're his disciple. Um, try to leave India as quickly as possible. Because there were, there were brawls breaking out in some of his centers and, you know, local people kind of taking a, a vigilante position and trying to um, burn down his ashrams and like it was pretty scary for a while there. Wow so they really they really take this stuff seriously. Yes. That yeah, when they, somebody they, says they're celibate and that's part of their yeah. teachings Indians yeah. are not they don't screw around with that stuff. No well I mean try dressing up as a priest and going into the Vatican <laughs> they don't take it slightly. <laughs> right. Religion. Um, right good point. Imposters are considered, you know, the worst kind of anti-religious figures. And so they call them self-styled godmen. And, you know, it runs rampant in India that these people will um, build up a huge following for themselves and claim to be something and then turn out to, to be the exact opposite. Um, and whether, whether they're doing it for money or for power or for perversion or maybe for all of the above, um, the public definitely does not stand for that. They, they won't put up with it. That's interesting because India is this huge place with thousands yeah. of gods and, and yeah. you know, this whole caste system and maybe some places do it, maybe some places don't or whatever. I'm not really sure, but, you know, I don't want to, it's just interesting to me because you have this huge country. How many people are there? Like it's, it's a lot, right? In over a billion. Yeah, over a billion. And I mean, that's a lot of people for, for the size of land that they've got. Yes. And of course, there's going to be people who are going to take advantage. I mean, so they have, but they have this huge, long, thousands years tradition yeah. of Hinduism. And so, I, yeah, of course, all through the ages, there must have been charlatans and fakes and yeah. people trying to, and cult leaders. Absolutely. And this is the sad thing because Hinduism, unlike, you know, Christianity or the Abrahamic religions that kind of prophesy um, specific incarnations. Hinduism is kind of more of an open framework. So anybody can pop up in any era and say, you know, I am the incarnation of this God or that God. And because it's, it's experience based, people will believe them. And I mean, maybe the differences in Vaishnavism, they have kind of a, a set timeline of when the different incarnations of Vishnu will be born. And Niti kind of evaded that by claiming to be a Purnavatar, an incarnation of all the different gods. That's his claim. Um, so, I mean, if, if you talk to a Hindu scholar, they'll say he's obviously a fraud because he doesn't fit into um, the timeline that was given thousands of years ago of when, you know, first was Rama and then Krishna and the next is going to be called Kalki. Well, he's not Kalki, so he's obviously a fake. Um, but there's still enough openness to Hinduism that somebody can be a total imposter. And I mean, I could pontificate all day on what I think he actually is because my, my personal belief is that he has 
some form of, of mental illness, maybe something like Messiah complex or dissociative identity disorder, where he genuinely believes he is this God. And he's surrounded himself with brainwashed people who reinforce his own um, grandiose false perception of himself. But that's I, well, kind of I definitely agree. That's probably not a yeah. diagnosis that is uh, applicable only to Nitty. No, you know, we, no. we, see, we see this in so many of these people and there's, there's a megalomania. I mean, we have all these terms yeah, for it, but absolutely. it really does come down to the person truly believes that they are somehow greater than, better than, uh, holier than, you know, others. Yeah. And maybe they convince themselves they've got a, a job to teach other people. But at the end of the day, it really is all about them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, my friend's talked me into putting the mala back on again and said, you know, whatever experience we had at Lifeless Engineering, what we felt during um, the different darshans and, you know, how, how healthy our bodies are after doing, you know, an hour of yoga every day for three months. Like we were actually very healthy because of the yoga, more flexible than we'd ever been before, maybe stronger than we'd been before. So they were grilling me and saying, okay, so do you feel you got from the program what you wanted coming in? And the answer was yes. And then they started going back to, well, didn't you have dreams of Nityananda where he appeared like a god? And yes, I had. And who knows whether that was from the power of suggestion, but I believed it was mystical at the time. So we kind of spent a day just rehashing all of our experiences and all of our dreams and convincing ourselves and each other that no matter what he's done in the bedroom, he is still our guru. And so I left India, went back to Vancouver, found that the majority of the community in Vancouver had come to the same conclusion that no matter what we see in that video, it's irrelevant. He is still our guru. And of course, the ashrams started telling us that just like Osho used to say to his disciples, Nithi is now telling all of us, you can't put the master in a frame because as soon as you have the master in a frame, he will break your logic and break that frame. There's no uh, living within the parameters of any socially imposed expectation for him. He is beyond all expectations. And so we were actually um, told that he deliberately created a sex scandal in order to purify his sangha, in order to shake off the dead leaves who were weighing down the tree, and those are all the people who left, and it's all the fresh buds coming in now. Whoever stands with him through that scandal, those are the real chosen ones. Those are his true core disciples. Yeah, so, I, I totally get yeah. that. Let me, let me interrupt you one second, because I want to walk you back a little bit to that day when you threw the necklace down, you were done. You were like, this is bullshit. This guy's a hypocrite. And then you sat down and you talked to these other two who were probably experiencing their own crisis of faith or whatever you want to call it. Couldn't you, can you remember what was the, what were you thinking at the exact moment or around the moment of changing your mind back? you know, of like, okay, I'm going to put it back. Okay, I'm, you're, you're right. I'm going to go back to this. Yeah. What, what was the motivation there? 
you know, I can't honestly remember verbatim the thoughts that I had in my head at that time, but I can sure. remember the emotions I was feeling. I, I remember, as embarrassing as it is, my first feeling was extreme jealousy towards that lady Ranjita, that here's God himself incarnate, and of all the women on the planet, he chose her. So does that mean she's the goddess and now we have to worship her? Well, fuck that. She was a bitch. Like, she was mean to all of us. Like, why would I suddenly, you know, believe in her? Uh, and then when I found out that another volunteer had accused him of rape, it went from kind of jealousy into being sickened by him. Like, oh my God, he's a predator. You know, he, he raped a woman. Well, they can't both be incarnations of the goddess. And meanwhile, in one of the darshans, he told me that I was an incarnation of the goddess Shakti. So it was also in my mind, well, was he trying to set me up for the same kind of thing? And then finally, you know, the, the jealousy that turned into an anger kind of turned into a, a neutralized emotion where I decided no matter what it is, it's beyond my, my comprehension. And so the easiest thing was to just surrender back again into whatever he says, whatever he does. Yes, the experience was good. Yes, the yoga helped my body. Um, kind of just, just relaxing into the idea that let's wait and see what happens next and not come to any sudden conclusions. Um, because we were also told emotional reactionary mind will never lead you to the right decision. We, we were told if you ever make a decision that impacts your life in a moment of extreme emotion, it will lead you astray. And so I couldn't make a huge decision like stop following him now while I was mad because that meant it was the wrong decision. It was emotionally driven, not intellectually driven. Right. So, so you take a true piece of information or advice yeah. and then you, yeah. I mean, because you, you're not wrong about that. You shouldn't be making major life decisions when you're angry. It's absolutely yeah. true. My advice has yeah. always been give it two or three days. Think about it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, but I'm interested because, again, there is a parallel here. I, I would recover people to Scientology. I spent yeah. a couple of years doing that, right? Literally going, knocking on doors hey, you know, you were a Scientologist, you were on board, you know, and now you're not. What happened, right? Listen to the person, let them get off all of their, and then this happened, and this yeah. happened, and this happened. But the key to it, the, the, the key to getting people back, and I think I talked about this once a couple of years ago, was rehabilitating their original purpose for being in Scientology in the first place. And this was based on a piece of advice from L. Ron Hubbard in one of his policies. He said, you know, that the, it's a, there's a very powerful uh, piece of information is, you know, you rehabilitate that, that all stops, he said, all stops come from a failed purpose. So if you, if you want to remove the stops, you rehabilitate the failed purpose, right? So you run into a situation, and I would do this with, with people where, you know, you've run into a situation where your purpose to follow this guy, become spiritually aware, have all this, you know, bliss, uh, got blunted, got stopped, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, the guy's a hypocrite, he's a rapist, he's a what, 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 right? And, uh, and of course, with Scientologists, you know, they get taken for a ride financially, or somebody takes advantage of them, or somebody yells and screams at them, or something happens that gets them to go, oh, this is a fraud, this is a sham, I'm, I'm out, I show up. I say, tell me what happened. Very friendly, very open, very listening. You know, there's no, 
yelling and screaming. There's no like, you're wrong for leaving. It's just, hey man, come on, just tell me what happened, right? I'm here to listen. And they tell you. And then you say, well, what was it that got you into Scientology in the first place? What was it you were trying to accomplish, you know? And then they start going to a more pleasant place. Yeah. You know, because that's that initial moment of conversion when they're like, oh, this is the thing that's going to save my life, my marriage, my family, whatever it is. And when they get back in that space, you know, then it's like, oh, now you're kind of talking to a little bit of a different person. Yeah. And then it's easier to go, well, you know, you can still accomplish that. Mm -hmm. You know, you can still make that happen. We can still do that for you. The, 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 the methods, the tech is still there for you. And I just can't help but see that you're in a, sort of in a roundabout way. Your friends yeah. kind of did that with you. Absolutely. And yeah. later it became one of my jobs in the organization to do that with others on a larger scale. So it was definitely a cycle that was planted in us. Yeah, and there you go. We were told that in that Life Bliss Engineering program, um, we usually call it LBE, they taught us or they indoctrinated us to believe the loss of the guru is worse than death. Because if your physical body dies, you'll be born again, you can start over from scratch, you can eventually find the guru and get enlightened. But if you lose your connection with the guru, you've lost all hope for enlightenment, not only in this lifetime, but in many lifetimes to come, because you were presented with the opportunity and you turned it down. And that's terrible yes. karma. So we were all uh, led to believe that the worst crime you can commit is a crime called guru droha, going against the master. And that the crime is even worse if you pull other people away from the master too, because then you are committing a form like spiritual murder against their souls. And Fascinating. So if see, yeah, if you see that somebody is losing their connection with the guru, it is your duty and your responsibility and your obligation to pull them back to him again, because otherwise you are letting them commit like a spiritual suicide. And so they definitely would have thought that they were doing the right thing for me. And I was grateful to them for that. So I, I got back to Vancouver again. And the majority of the community there were still gathering in the center for daily or, you know, meditations and satsangs and healing services. We'd all been initiated into this thing called Nitya Spiritual Healing, where we were told if we just meditate on the form of the guru he will take over our bodies and then anybody we touch, he'll bless them and heal them. So they still had regular healing sessions. Um, that was the main way to bring more people into the group. So in one of those sessions, Nitti had just been released from prison and he gave a discourse to all of us live. It was held at a devotee's house. Um, he met us on a Skype call from India and called each of us who had attended either IA or LBE, called us by name and said, thank you for staying with me through this terrible trial. Um, he told us that the video had been morphed, that it was created by anti-Hindu elements to try to extort money from him. And that, you know, they morphed the image of him and they morphed the image of Ranjita and made it look like they were sexually involved. And that, you know, they told Nitti that if he paid them some huge price, they would keep it hidden. But if he didn't pay them this huge amount of money, they would give the tape to Sun TV. 
and we believed it. It was a convenient, you know, convenient um, replacement for the reality in order to maintain our connection with him. So he invited us all for a free program called Living Enlightenment Process. And this LEP program was the first time he ever gave a free program in his campus in India. So we all jumped at the chance. And by all, I mean, there were, you know, over a hundred people there from around the world. Definitely a small group compared to, you know, the December program that it had 700 people or even the LBEs that it had, you know, 500. But he said that this was the core group of people who would rebuild his mission. And he divided us into different little groups of people um, based on which city we were from, based on our skill level. Um, he had the whole hall divided in two and usually females sat on one side, males on the other. This time people planning to go back to the Western world sat on one side and people staying back as sannyasis sat on the other. And it was then that we were all told you know, whoever has applied to be a sannyasi in the past, even if your application was rejected, now it's approved. So it was a sudden open door system. And I said, well, do I still have to finish my university degree? And they said, no, 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 there's no need. You know, your, your devotion to the guru is far superior to an education, to a degree. So you can come. But I, I still had things I had to return to Vancouver for, like, um, I had a new apartment that I signed a year's lease for, and I gave my boss notice for a break, not for, you know, I didn't say I'm moving to India that time. So I, I still had to go back, but they let me sit in the sannyasi side of the hall because I had the intention to one day go back as a sannyasi. And during this LEP program, we were, we were living more closely with Niti than we had during the other programs. Um, he ate meals with us. We had these things they called the campfire sessions where we sat outside at night with a nice campfire and he told us stories about his childhood and stories about his time wandering in India. And since then, a lot of people have debunked those stories. Like most of it was just bullshit to make him sound more spiritual than he was. Like he claimed that, Yeah. Really? He would do that? What? Yeah, I know. I'm surprised too. <laughs> no, I mean like he... he that he had walked the length and breadth of India and that I, I think something like when he was 17 years old he left home with nothing but these wooden sandals and a saffron robe and a begging bowl and something called a kamandalu like a water pot and you know just with these few meager possessions he walked all across India for nine years and realized his enlightenment well his actual life was that he went to engineering school for two years after high school at that exact same age when he supposedly wandered India. Um, and briefly, he lived in Ramakrishnamat as a sannyasi who got kicked out of that place. And we don't really know why. Um, but it's very obvious that the timelines overlap and that everything he told us was just a fantastical fairy tale to make us more devoted to him. But at that time, we didn't know these things yet because the pictures of him in engineering school hadn't surfaced. And of course, when those did surface, he, he kind of swept them aside and said that time is vertical and he lives in a vertical time zone, not a horizontal time zone. And we can't understand 
the the simultaneous nature of where he is and where he perceives himself to like it's he's very creative with his inventions of you know excuses and you know people who believe in him are also um very malleable in in their willingness to believe bullshit and i was one of them for a long time um but anyhow at lep he divided our group into intellectual teams who took over certain responsibilities. So for example, anybody who spoke both Tamil and English were put onto a translation team where they were given newspaper articles and magazine articles about him. And their job was to translate those from Tamil into English. And then there was a writing team who had to debunk the claims made against him from these translated versions and explain why the anti-Hindu elements in the newspapers and the magazines, they called them prostitutes. Why are the prostitutes attacking him and how much are they being paid to make up these horrendous lies about him? And at that time I was put onto a team called the social media team. And it was led by a lady, um, her name was Sugandhi and she has since also left the organization. Um, oh, now let me be clear. Was this in Canada or was this back in no, India? is in India. This is the okay. Living Enlightenment Process free program. So this is when it's still on the free program. You're still there yeah. for that. You haven't gone back yet. <laughs> no, no. We're still there for the free program. But part yeah, yeah. of the program is that every day we're going to do eight hours of seva, which means volunteer work. Um, so the, the volunteer team I was on in that program was the social media team. And we each had to start a blog and a Facebook account. That's when I joined Facebook. Um, and a Twitter account. And we also started a Facebook public figure page for Nitti. And one of my jobs was to grow his Facebook, his Facebook page and get followers for him. And I was really praised at the time because, you know, it went from zero to 500 likes overnight. Um, and it was a fairly grassroots effort. Like we didn't buy likes. We didn't have the the technological or, or the computer background to know that that could even be done. So what we did is we got everyone in the, in the program to send the link to that page to everyone in their friend list and say, you should like this new page. We'll share meditation tips and quotes from Nithi's discourses and behind the scenes photos of him. Um, so we offered like an insider's incentive. Whoever likes this page will get his news before it reaches outside. And started spreading it everywhere. Everyone was encouraged to blog about their experiences with him. And that's how he bounced back after the sex scandal was by, you know, bringing in all of these Western disciples and NRI, non-resident Indian disciples to, you know, really push people to look past the scandal and you know, whoever was willing to bend their logic believed that it was a morphed video. Whoever wasn't willing to bend their logic, well, you can't put the master in a frame. You know, what he does is beyond your human puny bitty brain comprehension skills. So, you know, just trust him. And we were always encouraged to tell people, for example, who wanted to go to the programs, don't think, just experience. You know, the mind doesn't exist, only the body and the consciousness exist. So whatever you think about it is irrelevant. You should just come experience it. And, you know, when it comes to brainwashing people or, you know, hypnotizing people, the moment you say, don't think, just be in the body, just feel, 
the whole rational thought process is made redundant. And that's when people are the most vulnerable. And that was his main technique for bringing people to programs is telling them, don't think about it, just jump in, just do it, don't miss it. This could be your last chance for enlightenment. If you miss it now, it might never be offered again. So when we left the Living Enlightenment Process program, a few people stayed back as sannyasis. Those of us who returned home were told, you are now accepted completely by Niti, and he is your guru. So live in the world as if you are already a sannyasi. So that means doing the daily worship ceremony to him called a puja, watching his daily discourses. Don't let a day go by without watching his discourse. That was part of the lifestyle we had to practice, um, doing the yoga. And so even though we were back in the real world, we were living as if we were in the ashram. And, you know, during that time, the, the most life-changing discourse he ever gave happened one day when, you know, the curtains opened and he was sitting on stage and this was all being live telecast and he was visibly crying. And this, this guy never showed emotion other than a huge smiling face when he's on stage. Suddenly we see him wiping tears and he just motioned for them to close the curtain again. And the next day, the same thing happened. And then the third day, the curtains opened and, you know, he was still looking really down and like he had his hand in, over his face and was shaking his head and, and very acting, very melodramatic. And he said he had read the Bhagavad Gita. And this is the, the sacred scripture in India, um, revered by Vaishnavites, that tells the story of Krishna on the battlefield of the Kurukshetra war with Arjuna. And, you know, the backstory is that Arjuna is the heir to the throne um, of the Pandava Empire, but they are being attacked by these, you know, evil cousins who want to usurp the throne, and he has to wage war against them because he represents the lineage of people who are good, noble rulers and, and benevolent and have the people's best interests at heart, whereas those trying to take over his throne are greedy and and malicious and they're going to work the, the peasants to you know to the bone and just have no regard for anyone except for expanding their wealth so krishna as the incarnation of vishnu pushes arjuna to do his dharma you know to fulfill his duty in that war and the bhagavad gita it's a very beautiful book like i i still recommend it to anyone because it's all about doing what's right instead of what's easy and in the basically you can use it like an analogy if life is a battlefield don't hold yourself back from success keep pushing forward keep doing what you need to do but in this in this story of the bhagavad gita you know krishna has to push arjuna to shoot an arrow at his childhood guru who's fighting on the other side and to kill his own cousins and to keep pushing forward into battle even though he doesn't want to. And throughout the whole thing, Arjuna is a little bit skeptical and is asking Krishna, you know, what are you going to benefit from all this? Why do you want me to kill these people? Uh, why do you want me to wage this war? I would rather just surrender and let them take the throne. What's the worst that can happen? And Krishna kind of has to convince Arjuna that he's an incarnation of God and that he has 
no self-interest in the result of this war, that it's for Arjuna's sake. So, you know, Nithi is on the stage with these overdramatic tears falling from his eyes and saying, you know, he felt a huge depression as soon as he read Bhagavad Gita, because at the end of Bhagavad Gita, Arjuna realizes Krishna is an avatar and surrenders to him completely and does everything he says without question. And Niti suddenly lays a guilt trip on all of us and says that he doesn't have a single disciple as qualified as Arjuna. Nobody gets him. It's, it's like a poor old me kind of a, you know, self-pity um, that he was applying to himself and, and telling all of us, you know, why am I even alive in this form? Why did I come down as a guru? None of you are ready to do what needs to be done. Nobody recognizes me. And then he motioned for them to close the curtain and his discourse ended. So you can imagine all of the chats that we were having with each other were like, oh shit, like we suck. What, what should we do? How can we become Arjuna? So we're not qualified and, and our master who is Nitya Ananda, like the embodiment of eternal bliss is depressed because we suck so bad. <laughs> like what should we <laughs> right. do? Um, so, I mean, people were tweeting to him saying, please bless me to become your Arjuna. Please help me do what needs to be done. I'm ready to fight this Kurukshetra battle. You are Krishna. I know you're Krishna. And it, I mean, his agenda played out perfectly because the next day the curtain opened he was sitting on his throne with a smile and he blessed everybody and said, okay, I've received your prayers. I know now that you truly want to be Arjuna. Um, you've been begging me to tell you what you can do to become Arjuna. So here it is. Anybody who brings 10 paid participants to the Inner Awakening program, which is $6,000 per person, will be my Arjuna. You can all be Arjuna. All you have to do is bring 10 people to Inner Awakening. And so there was a mass recruitment effort established where as soon as that discourse ended, everyone started calling all their family, calling all their friends, pushing people to register, pushing people to make payments. Um, you know, there were discussions going on, what's the best way to strategically bring the, the highest number of people. And, you know, I, I started inwardly brainstorming, thinking, well, like, my Catholic family has no interest in going, and I'm not going to push them to go. They respect my religious beliefs. I'll respect theirs. So I didn't really think of trying to recruit my family. Most of my friends were art school students who didn't have that kind of money, and I didn't want to push them to take out loans that I knew they wouldn't be able to pay back. Um, because despite what we were told, I knew a lot of people who went to LBE who were still trying to pay off their loans. So I decided the best way I can reach people who have the desire to go and who can afford to go is by starting a YouTube channel. So in November of 2011, I started a YouTube channel and started talking about the different meditations that he taught and saying, you know, if you want to experience this for yourself, go to Inner Awakening. Registration details are in the video description. And, you know, nobody had told me to do that. I just thought, I want to be his Arjuna. Here's how I can do it. And really, you know, quickly, my channel became the most popular channel for recruiting people into that cult, which I didn't know was a cult at the time. 
And, you know, by 2015, when I went back in May for an inner awakening program in Varanasi, you know, they told me that I was the number one enricher and causer. So by that point in time, he had had a disciple join his mission who came directly from Landmark. And she taught him um, to teach about completion and incompletions. And, you know, the jargon switched from being about samskaras and engrams to being about getting complete and overcoming your incompletions. And they taught another thing straight out of Landmark, which is your inner image, outer image, other's image, and life image. And my world versus the world. And, you know, how to manifest your reality through integrity and authenticity and responsibility and enriching. And, of course, they redefined all of these landmark teachings as per their agenda and, you know, made up some Hindu-relevant scripture that they could claim that it was originated in so that nobody would really um, pursue them for plagiarism. But, you know, at that point, the main goal for people in his mission was to enrich and cause the realities of others. So find out what your neighbor wants and then enrich him through Niti's teachings to achieve it. And if he still can't achieve it, cause a higher reality for him by getting him to pay the six grand and go attend Inner Awakening. So enriching meant introducing somebody to Niti's teachings um, and causing meant getting them to pay for the program. So it's, again, it's a loaded language because if I tell you like, Chris, why don't you enrich me? You know, you, you could tell me something really good about anything or, or, you know, for a baker, they might enrich their customers by, you know, providing some tasty delicacies, right? But for us, enriching was only enriching if it means bringing Nithi's teachings to someone. Right. Anything else is the wrong definition of enriching. Right. Causing someone's reality. If, if somebody wants to drive a Lamborghini and you're a billionaire and you, you buy them a Lamborghini, that is not causing their reality. Getting them to the inner awakening program through which Nitti will bless them and empower them to get that car of their dreams. That's the only way you can effectively cause somebody's higher reality. Right. All roads lead to Nitti. All roads lead to Nitti. Exactly. And if, if it doesn't lead to him, it's useless. It's a waste of your life. Right. You know, it, right. It's, if, if you are his disciple and you are not making everyone else in your life his disciple, you are a failure. You're not Arjuna. You don't qualify. You, you are not worthy of being in his presence. Because <laughs> you are only worthy to be in his presence if you enrich and cause the world to be in his presence. I'm not so, worthy. I'm not I'm worthy. Not that, no. <laughs> <laughs> Alice Cooper there who knows everything about everything. Yes, <laughs> and, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 